0: I know I said I wouldn't do this anymore, but who am I kidding, right? So, yeah, once again, the show has gotten out of hand. The climactic end show for the Hannibal series is now going to be two shows. Mostly because I'm just super excited about this topic. It is one of my favorite in all of history, so it just keeps getting bigger and bigger as I find more and more stuff to cram into it. And this is not a bad thing for sure, but it does hurt the release schedule. But there is a second reason for this, why I'm subdividing the show. Because while it does turn out that you can indeed not have enough Hannibaling in one show, it is too big, the other factor is that we're into September now, September, which is when the Sydney Fringe Festival happens. And, once again, I will be performing the dying art of stand-up comedy at the Sydney Fringe Festival. So if you're in sitters at the end of the month, then come on down. It's going to be a blast. The show I'm in is called Tag Team, and it's, well, it's tag team comedy. And it's with friend of the pod, Jacques Barrett. It's going to be great. We have done this style of show before, so it's a tried and tested concept. It works. Everyone has a lot of fun. So if you're in Sydney in the last week of September, September. Let's do this face-to-face. Come see some com. It'll be a blast. There will be more deets at the end of the show if that's something you're keen on. But what it means is that just like last year, I will need to split up this show to give myself a bit of breathing room to actually write and perform a live stand-up show. I know I often say that comedy is easy, and it is, but it does take time. So to give myself that breathing room, you're epic finale on Hannibal is now two shows about Hannibal that are both, if I'm being honest with myself here, both of them are going to fit the historical definition of epic. We are entering into Uncle Dan Carlin territory here with our definition of epic. These great epics that took forever and, you know, half killed us and half killed you to listen to them. So for those of you who thought that we'd be wrapping things up with this show, you have my heartfelt apologies, but you do get more shows total, so there's swings and roundabouts there. And I mean, just for reference, Uncle Dan Carlin has put out just one main show this year, so at least I'm ahead of him, right? We're out in front. Alright, enough buggering around, let's dive on in. History never repeats, but it does often rhyme. Vibe to the beat of History Go Time. Thank you very much, John. John Deeks there, ladies and gentlemen. Legendary Australian announcer John Deeks just classing up the pod. We're going up market here. John Deeks, of course, being the former announcer for, among many, many other things, Wheel of Fortune, and he very generously agreed to do the intro to my show, because they are ultimately both shows that are thinly veiled pop culture references. Cheers, John. Really do appreciate it. Look at this fantastic Holden Barina, plus all of these exciting prizes just waiting to be won on the greatest wheel around, Wheel of Fortune. Alright, let's address a couple of things first. I know I've been ripping on the Spartans a lot lately, and I feel I need to clear something up based on that feedback. First off, I am of the opinion that the Spartans were indeed a very good ancient Greek army. Just because I feel that they are overrated doesn't mean that they were not a legitimate threat on the battlefield. I mean, let's not forget that they won the Peloponnesian War. I mean, sure, they had a lot of financial support from the Persians, but they did win the war. So props to the Spartans. The Spartans were very good fighters. My point is that they were overrated in terms of popular culture. A lot of people, especially those who don't know their history perhaps as well as they should, a lot of people tend to think that the Spartans were this race of invincible godmen who could never be defeated. You know, the whole Molan Labe thing. The truth is that the Spartans had their day in the sun, just like most other people's in history, but for some reason we tend to think that the Spartan day in the sun was longer and brighter than it actually was. Fight in the shade! Probably because they had all of those awesome one liners that they kept spitting out, that laconic wit. You know, we shall fight in the shade and tonight we dine in hell, all of that epic Spartan stuff. And our word laconic. Actually comes from the Spartans. The Spartan demonym was Lacedaemonian, hence laconic, it means to be like a Spartan. Spartans! What is your profession? Spartan boys, when they were in school, they used to be tied to a tripod and whipped until they could come up with witty action hero one-liners. Stick around. They literally trained to come up with those action hero sayings. We're married. Considered it a divorce. So maybe that's why they were so good at it, because they practiced it. It was a part of their culture. And, incidentally, that's why I'm not allowed to teach comedy anymore. And the other thing, Zack Snyder's film 300, which was in turn based on the comic book 300 by legendary comic book guy Frank Miller loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. I have a lot of time for 300. Comic book and film, but we're talking the film here. I think it is a great movie. I highly recommend it. I love 300. As I've said before on this show, and I can't remember where, but it was way back in the before times before I started getting good, so it's way too painful for me to go back and listen to the old shows. But I've said before that I think that 300 is one of the more historically accurate movies that I've ever seen. And I think I both need to say that again and to qualify it again, because the principle is going to come up a lot in this show. So obviously, if you watch 300, It's a fantasy movie. The Spartans have superhuman strength. They can leap tall buildings in a single bound. They throw spears clean through one person and into another person. They pick up elephants and hurl them into the ocean. The Persian arrows literally blot out the sun. The Persian army is literally a million men strong. It is a fantasy movie. Everything is dialed up to 11. But the reason I say that it's a historically accurate movie is because what it is doing is incredibly accurate. 300 isn't a third-person omniscient account of the Battle of the Hot Gates. There's a very crucial framing device for the film-slash-comic. Of the 300 Spartans, and there were way more than 300 Spartans there, by the way, They don't talk about the 10,000 not-Spartans, but of those 300 Spartans, one of them survived. And it's kind of hard to have a movie called 299, so we just call it 300. But one of them did survive. He was blinded early on in the battle, and the Spartans sent him home to tell the story of their deeds at the Battle of Thermopylae. And this guy's name was Dilios, who was played by David Wenham, aka Faramir if you're my age, and Diver Dan if you're my parents' age. I don't know what Gen Z would call him. David Wenham was in Iron Fist, but that was awful, and I don't think anyone watched it. But anyway, insert whatever your understanding of David Wenham is. 300 is not an objective telling of the story of the Battle of Thermopylae. 300 is actually Delios, the character, telling his version of the story to the people back home in Sparta. 300 is Delios' account of events, and that distinction is super important. Because Delios is telling a story to inspire the rest of his people to rise up and fight the Persians. He's recounting the valor of his fallen comrades. He's exaggerating for effect because he's a storyteller. The subtext of the film is that the events actually took place as we understand them to have happened in history... But Delios is taking a few creative liberties as he goes along. And this is why it's important to pay attention in English class, kids, so that you can pick up on things like subtext. So Delios was at the Battle of Thermopylae, and he saw that the Persians there, they had about 150,000 men. But Delios isn't going to stop and count that many people, so he looks at a big group of men and he says, oh, well, that's obviously a million people. So the Persian army is a million men strong. And these Persians, because they're an archer-heavy army, when they shoot their arrows, there's a hell of a lot of arrows. But he's not going to say that there's a hell of a lot of arrows. He's going to say that there are so many arrows that it went from daytime to nighttime. Delios has never seen an elephant before. So he's going to describe an elephant as this gargantuan monster straight out of myth, bigger than anything you've ever seen. Delios worshipped his captain, his king, Leonidas. So, of course, he says that Leonidas could throw a spear clean through six Persians and then slay a dozen more with his sword. He worshipped this guy. 300 is Delios telling the story of what actually happened, but from his perspective and with his agenda. And it's crucial that we understand this in history. Because what Delios does in 300 is what I do in these shows. But more importantly, our primary sources for this story today, people like Polybius and Livy, it's exactly what they're doing. Polybius was a pro-Roman Greek writing about how awesome Rome was. Livy was the same. Silius does it too. Hell, even modern historians do it. It's part of the human condition. We all have our biases, whether we know it or not. And those biases present themselves in how we tell a story. It shows itself in what parts of the story we tell, what we choose to leave out, what we're not even aware that we're leaving out. It's what we think is important and what we think isn't important, and that will never be consistent across everyone. And most importantly of all, remember that all of these people, from Polybius all the way up to me... We're all trying to tell the story in a way where we can convey the most amount of information, but, crucially, we're doing it in a way to keep an audience entertained and engaged. So when you're studying any source, always consider, what liberties is that source taking? And also, how much do you really care? I'm not saying that you shouldn't care, and I'm not saying you should care too much, but you've got to figure out where you fit on that spectrum. And also, pay attention in English class. Because it was never about what the author meant by saying something like, the curtains were blue. That was never an allegory for depression or something. It was to prepare you for shit like this. The world is a very ambiguous place, And most people don't tell you exactly what they're thinking. This show today is very pro-Hannibal because I'm very pro-Hannibal. The story is about an underdog who is incredibly skilled in his profession. Two things which I personally value. That's why I like Hannibal so much. Hannibal also commits a hell of a lot of genocide, and I just don't talk about it in these shows. He straight up murders tens of thousands of people, and enslaves even more, and those slaves lived lives where they wished that they were dead. And I'm not mentioning that because it doesn't fit my narrative. And also, nobody in that time period thought that Hannibal's actions were anything out of the ordinary. That's just how the world operated back then. So they were used to it. Which is a lot of what frustrates me about cancel culture so much. Anyone who has any part in cancel culture is historically illiterate and innately problematic. Not only is there not a single person in history who has no skeletons in their closet, I mean, take someone like Nelson Mandela, who is one of the most universally beloved people of all time, and rightfully so. He was an amazing person, a great proponent for humanity, a figure of peace, love, and harmony. Nelson Mandela was, make no mistake, a great man. But, remember, he was in prison for a reason. He was the leader of what was determined to be a terrorist organization, and whether he okayed it or not, that organization murdered a bunch of people in horrific ways. Mandela had his reasons, and obviously the downfall of apartheid South Africa is a pretty noble reason to be doing things, but still, he had some pretty horrific red in his ledger. And then he went on to lead an incredible life and be the amazing person that we remember him as, but by today's standards, we should absolutely be cancelling Nelson Mandela. We won't, because the whole idea is stupid. But if the cancel culture people had any sort of consistency beyond a reactionary need to buck against consensus, they would absolutely be cancelling Mandela. And when I put it like that, it does sound stupid, doesn't it? And we should always be very careful about judging the past by the mores of today, because, because it cuts both ways. It's easier to be holier than thou right now, but who knows what practices and Cultures we find benign and commonplace today will be considered utterly abhorrent in the future. I'm not even 40 years old yet, and there are things that I look back on that I enjoyed in my childhood that make me cringe today. So try and take that and extrapolate it over the course of about 2,000 years, and you might start to get why judging the past on the culture of today is inherently problematic. But we're getting out in the weeds here. So always have it in the back of your mind what the storyteller is trying to accomplish with their story. Don't stress about it too much, sit back and enjoy the show, but it's something you should at least be aware of. Believe it or not, school does actually teach you all of the things you need to know in life. You just have to figure out how it all fits together. And if you're one of those people who says, oh, why did they sit us down and teach us algebra instead of something useful like how to do our taxes, well, if you're one of those people, I'd don't think it was your school's fault. Tax is actually very easy to do. Except if you're listening from the United States, in which case I am deeply sorry, your entire society was built from the ground up to screw you, and I genuinely feel for you. But everywhere else in the world, it's actually relatively easy. This is an egregious miscarriagement of taxitude. So, when we left off last time, our old mate Hannibal Barker of the clan Barker had inherited his father's army an inconceivable amount of wealth. Hannibal had been raised from the time he was a small child to have one purpose in mind to destroy the nation of Rome and in two seventeen b c e Hannibal finally has the means to do it, so he sets off from his base in Spain and he goes to Rome to kill all of the Romans and turn their city into shadows and dust. That is nothing. Hamilcar Barker, the father, he had made huge inroads in conquering Spain, but he didn't quite get there before he got unalived. That's a fun word, isn't it? Unalived? If you've noticed a lot of people saying unalived lately, especially on YouTube... It's because if you say words like murder or kill or suicide or even famine, your show will get demonetized and you can no longer advertise on it and you miss out on any money for doing that show. So that's fun. Welcome to the downfall of civilization, kids. Ray Bradbury is turning in his grave. Meanwhile, Thomas Bowdler has a massive tumescent erection because of this. It also emphasizes the importance of things like Patreon, but I'll get to that at the end of the show. So, Hamilcar Barca conquered most of Spain, but not all of it. A large chunk of it was still in flux. Which is fair enough, Spain is a big place, and Hamilcar Barca was just one guy. I mean, it's staggering he got as far as he did. But this did not go unnoticed by the Romans who were a little bit nervous about Hamilcar Barca, someone they knew that they could not match in the field, they were a tad jumpy about this guy conquering most of Spain in a very short period of time. If you know your geography, you know that Spain is pretty close to Italy. And if you're Rome, you want at least a hemisphere between you and Hamilcar Barca, Preferably, you want him in the Phantom Zone, like General Zod. You want him trapped in a mirror of some kind. You really do not like the idea of him setting up two towns over. That is far too close for comfort. And this is indeed quite nerve-wracking for the Romans. Not only was Spain incredibly wealthy with all of its gold and silver mines, things that Rome would have rather belonged to Rome, They were in the hands of someone who had the ancient equivalent of Death to Rome tattooed on his knuckles. I know I said it a lot in the last show, but I really cannot understate this. Hamilcar Barker fucking hated Rome. He hated Rome with the kind of fanaticism it is hard to comprehend. Hamilcar's hatred of Rome makes someone like Ted Kaczynski seem mildly annoyed at industrialization. And this guy is building up a huge army right next door to Rome? That sets off some rather large alarm bells in the Roman Senate. And I mean, rightfully so. Hamilcar was one scary motherfucker. So Rome sends some ambassadors over to Spain, which essentially belongs to Hamilcar at this point, and they ask what the fuck is going on. Hey, I can't help but notice you're building up a rather large army here and conquering a hell of a lot of silver mines. Is this something we need to worry about? And Hamilcar basically says, no, no, don't worry about it, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry, just chill, it's fine. What he actually says is that because of the peace treaty from the end of the First Punic War, he owes a great debt to Rome. So he's conquering this rich country to pay off those debts. And there's not much the Romans can do about it at this point because it's kind of hard to go to war with someone who is paying your bills. But it may have been enough for them to start looking at options regarding assassins who may have been in the area. Listen, if you ever need anybody murdered, please give me a call. You're, you're I'm very discreet. A card. I have no code of ethics. I will kill anyone, anywhere. Children, animals, old people, doesn't matter. I just love killing. If you've ever played a Civilization game, and I imagine that's a lot of this audience, you'll know the exact kind of deal we're talking about here. You know when you've got a massive army and you're about to go and conquer another nation, and then they send you a message saying, hey, can't help but notice the huge fucking army sitting right next to my borders. Is this going to be a problem? And then you send a message back saying, I'm just passing through, don't worry about it. And then you invade and wipe them off the map. That is exactly what Hamilcar is doing. Which is why it is my opinion, and it's not one that I hold exclusively, it's rather common, it's my opinion that Rome paid to have Hamilcar assassinated by the Oritani tribe of Spain. Oh boy, here I go killing again. I don't know if they paid extra to have the deluxe package of Flaming Sword Boromir death thrown in there, but that is one DLC that I would actually pay for myself. Remember, it is absolutely unproven that Hamilcar was assassinated at all. That's just my opinion. Take from it what you will. But very conveniently for the Romans, Hamilcar Barker goes from gathering a massive army to unalive in a very short space of time. Like I say, it's convenient. But anyway, to catch up from where we were the last show, Hamilcar Barker, biggest badass in the ancient world, is dead. Now his army has passed on to his son, Hannibal. And Hannibal, as we're going to find out hundreds of times over the next few hours, Hannibal ain't no fool. One thing Hannibal knows is that you need to consolidate your borders. You don't want an enemy coming at you from somewhere that you thought was pacified, so he sets about pacifying. Like I said in the last show, right at the end, it's complicated and it's not really worth getting into, but Hannibal manages to get most of Spain under his control in fairly short order. It's not interesting enough to tell the story, but it demonstrates that Hannibal is A, firmly in charge of his father's army and that there are no issues of inheritance, B, firmly in charge of the nation of Hispania who can do nothing to stop Hannibal, and C, Hannibal is the kind of guy who crosses his I's, dots his T's, and gets shit done with efficiency. This is not a guy who is a fan of dicking around. And it's not like I'm glossing over it here. Well, I am, but there is a reason. There just isn't that much evidence about what happened during this period. Because our chief source here is Polybius, who was writing about 50 years after the conclusion of the Third Punic War. And Polybius, as we know, was a Roman fanboy who didn't give a shit about anyone who wasn't Roman. So in his entire histories, there's like one paragraph that says, the Carthaginians built a new city in Spain and did quite well for themselves. And that's all we get from this period. Then he will spend dozens of pages talking about random shit that the Romans were doing. Things like, so-and-so, who was the son of, who's it?, was sent as an envoy to Corsica, and this was what was served at the banquet. And then he will spend four pages talking about grapes. Nothing about how Hannibal comes to power. The guy who was about to become the most important person in history. So the records from this period are a bit patchy. There's something else from the last couple of shows that I feel I need to bring up again too, because it's crucial to the fabric of this story. We all know how famously arrogant Rome was and how their conquest of both Greece and Carthage in recent years made them even more arrogant on top of that. Rome were the big dog on campus now. The Romans feared none of the major empires in the world at the time because they had just beaten two of them back to back. But there's an important caveat to all of this. The Romans were always fucking terrified of Celts on a deep, possibly even primal level. It's afraid. It's afraid! Well, more specifically, they were afraid of Gauls, but for our purposes, it's pretty much the same thing. Gauls were the crazy tribal people from modern-day France, but a Celt was anyone who identified as someone with the common beliefs and customs of a Celt. So a Celt could be anyone from Wales to Russia in this point. That's why the distinction between Celts and Gauls can get pretty confusing. I've done a show specifically about this before. It's called Vivictus, which you could easily revisit because that was back in the days when I came in at around 30 minutes, and we're almost there now. But if you want a quick recap, here we go. Because the Roman cultural fear of Gauls slash Celts is going to be very important flavor today. Previously on X-Men. Come on, they're gonna kill him. Good. What? In 390 BCE, so nearly two centuries before our main story, a tribe of Gallic Celts or Celtic Gauls, same thing, a tribe of these bad boys named the Seinones marched on Rome. And if the name Seinones sounds kind of familiar, and if you're thinking the river Seine in Paris, you're bang on the money. Same thing. Or is that Seine thing? Anyway, these Seinones were bad motherfuckers, and they were led by an absolute gigachad a warlord named Brennus. And Brennus took his warriors, marched on Rome, kicked the shit out of the Romans in a field battle at the River Alia, and then, with nobody left to stop him, he marched on Rome itself and captured the city. (laughs) So, Spaniard, we shall go to Rome together and have bloody adventures. And the great whore will suckle us until we are fat and happy and can suckle no more. It was the only time that anyone ever captured the city of Rome, right up until the very end of the Roman Empire, some 800 years later, when absolutely everything went to shit. Now, this wasn't big boy Rome. It was right at the point where Rome first became a major city, but before it had conquered anyone else in the region. So this wasn't the Roman Republic, it wasn't the Roman Empire, it was Rome the city. But it was still the biggest city in the region, and capturing it was a big deal, and Brennus is majorly famous for doing this. So these Celts, they kill the Roman army, collect a bunch of skulls, capture the city, murder a bunch of people, set fire to a large part of Rome, and then the Romans decide to pay them a shitload of money to go away. Which they do. And that's the story in a nutshell. But what we need to take note of is that Rome suffered some extreme emotional damage in this incident. It's the only time that Rome had ever been occupied by a hostile power and it messed with their shit for hundreds of years. They were scared of these people. They didn't like to admit it, but it was absolutely there. Is the little devil. Remember in the last show when I said that Rome went completely bankrupt in their war with Carthage, like they were scraping the very bottom of the coffers? Well, that isn't quite true. Rome always had some money in an emergency fund just in case the barbarians came marching over the hills again. It was a war fund that was specifically in case of Celtic invasion. In case of Celts coming over the hills, break glass. This money was for the express and sole purpose of Celtic invasion. Nothing else. It could not be touched for any other reason. Even if you're in an existential war with another superpower, a war that you've been fighting for 23 years, and the city may not survive another month, you cannot touch this money. It is only for Celtic invasion. That's it. So these guys live rent-free in Roman heads for centuries. And the reason it's important is because this is what is currently stopping Rome from sending an army to keep Hannibal in check. Hannibal right now is still building up his forces. He's actually quite vulnerable at this stage. This would be a great time for Rome to preemptively attack and nip that one in the bud. Rome knows that Hannibal is building a huge army and they know that this army is going to be very good because it's led by a barker. They know that Hannibal has been trained from birth to slay Romans. So they absolutely do not believe Hannibal when he tells them that they do not need to worry about this army. But they can't do anything about it because if they travel to Spain and engage Hannibal there, There's a very good chance that some of these Celts that are around are going to use that as an opportunity to attack Rome themselves, and that scares the ever-loving shit out of anyone Roman. So if you're wondering why everyone is just sitting on their hands waiting for Hannibal to come to them, that's why. They are scared of Gauls. Polybius says in his histories, and I quote, For the present they, Rome, did not venture to impose orders on Carthage or to go to war with her because the threat of a Celtic invasion was hanging over them, the attack being expected from day to day. End quote. And that is the closest you'll ever see Polybius come to admitting that Rome has a weakness, and that weakness was Celts. Rome were perpetually worried that the Celts were going to invade. And of course, it didn't help that every couple of decades, Rome would elect someone who needed to prove how big his dick was, so he'd send an army into ancestral Celtic lands, murder a bunch of people, steal all their stuff, enslave a bunch more people, and then set it all on fire, and then come back to Rome and have a huge party about how he did all of that, and then everyone wonders why the Celts don't like them. So the Romans are starting to get pretty jumpy. They've just fought a war for nearly a quarter of a century that took them to the absolute brink. They'll never admit this, but they're not quite up for a fight themselves. The First Punic War took as much out of them as it did out of Carthage. They cannot handle another war right now, and this is still about 15-20 years after the Punic War. They are still warred out. They would really rather not do this. They'll never admit it, but it's true. And they know that the Celts can sense this weakness and might be plotting against them. And they're scared of Celts. And they also know that they've been dicks to Celts for centuries, so that's double bad. And now, there's an absolute lunatic building an army just across the Balearic Sea. The son of the guy who hated Rome more than anyone else in the world. The son of a guy that Rome could not handle on a good day. The son of a guy who carved his name in Roman blood all up and down Sicily for the better part of two decades. And now, this new guy, the son of Hamilcar Barker, is building an army, and everyone in Rome is getting pretty edgy. The Roman historian Livy describes Hannibal as Hamilcar Reborn, which is some serious Wheel of Time shit. The fantastic book series, not the TV show that doesn't exist. Actually, the whole quote from Livy is pretty boss, so here we go. Here's Livy. No sooner had Hannibal arrived that the old soldiers fancied they saw Hamilcar in his youth given back to them. The same bright look, the same fire in his eye, the same trick of countenance and features. Never was one and the same spirit more skillful to meet opposition, to obey, or to command. End quote. So Rome's greatest foe had been reborn. Hannibal Barker seems to be exactly the same person as Hamilcar Barker. Rome is very nervous indeed. As for Carthage, they have absolutely no say in what is happening in Spain right now. Hamilcar Barker did a Colonel Kurtz at the end of the Mercenary War. He went off the reservation. He was AWOL for the rest of his life. They told me that you had gone totally insane. And, uh, that your methods were unsound. Are my methods unsound? I don't see any method. At all. Carthage kept trying to give him orders. Hamilcar could not give less of a fuck. He just ignored them. Unless the orders were, go and murder a bunch of Romans, Hamilcar was not interested. And not only was he Carthage's best general, so even if Carthage had a problem with him, who are they going to send against him? He's their best guy. Now, Hamilcar has a country of his own, and his own personal army. So, what is Carthage going to do about this guy? It's not like they can enforce any of their orders. That was the father. Now the son is in charge, though, Hannibal. And here's the thing. Hannibal Barker, the most famous Carthaginian general of all time, he is not exactly Carthaginian. He was born there, sure, but Hannibal hasn't lived in Carthage since he was nine years old. He hasn't been back to this point. Hannibal might be remembered in history as Carthaginian, but he's Spanish. Oh, you should see the Colosseum, Spaniard. which means that he gives even less of a shit when Carthage tries to send him orders. Hannibal Barker answers only to Hannibal Barker. And now he has built this massive army in Spain that has Death to Rome written on it while simultaneously telling the Romans that it isn't aimed directly at their heads. Chill, there's nothing to worry about. It's, it's cool. That's just German for the Romans, the So Rome sent some envoys over to Hannibal to sort of say, uh, Hey buddy, what's up? I can't help but notice you're amassing a massive army here. Uh, What's up with that? I mean, I only ask because you seem to be sitting on a throne made of Roman skulls. And, well, me and the boys, we're kind of nervous about the whole Roman skull thing, right? Well, they put it differently. Roman ambassadors were all famously arrogant dickwads, and these ones in particular rubbed Hannibal the wrong way. They could have been polite to Hannibal. That was always an option. I don't think it would have changed how history actually went down, but maybe it would have. Instead of being polite, though, Romans are always going to Roman. They didn't ask. They demanded that Hannibal disbanded his army and returned to Carthage. And that's when Hannibal responds with the absolute litany of shit that Rome had unfairly done to Carthage since the end of the First Punic War, and it is a very long list. Oh, oh, and he scratches himself with his keys. I guess that's it. No, no, wait, he kicks me in his sleep and his toenails are too long and yellow. Hannibal says that Rome had altered the terms of the peace treaty not once, not twice, but thrice. They kept screwing Carthage over. They kept upping the reparations. They annexed colonies specifically against the terms of the peace treaty. There was a whole bunch of shit that Rome did that rubbed Carthage the wrong way. Hannibal says, You guys have had this coming for a long time now, so instead of disbanding my army... You can take it up with Decius. And the Romans say, Who is Decius? Decius nuts! These nuts? Ha! <laughs> Gotti! <him. laughs> Rome absolutely deserved what was about to happen. Make no mistake about that. They were complete dicks, and all of Hannibal's points were indeed very valid. Rome were well overdue for a spanking at this point. So Hannibal is outlining all of these many grievances against Rome. The Roman ambassadors, with their famous Roman arrogance, they said, well, you know, fair point, we actually did all of that shit, but what are you going to do about it? Which, as you're all probably putting together, was absolutely the wrong thing to say. Well, here's what Hannibal is going to do about it. Rome had a client state in Spain at the time. Spain didn't entirely belong to the Barcas, just most of it, but there were still holdout segments. And there was a city by the name of Seguntum, which is in modern-day Segunto in Valencia. It was a Spanish city, but it was allied to Rome. Seguntum was a reasonably big city back in the day, and strategically it was very important. The city itself was located on a large hill, and it had very high walls. It commanded a huge section of the land surrounding it. It was a very well-defended city in a very hard-to-capture location. So naturally, Hannibal took it. Hannibal just said to the Romans, Hey, you know that city that you vowed to protect in order to collect taxes from them for years? Well, fuck that city. And he sacked it. Which is certainly one way to send a message. Sacking a city, if you don't know, is when you capture the city, steal everything you can carry, enslave as many people as possible, kill anyone that you cannot enslave, and then on your way out, you set fire to the place. This is in contrast to raising a city, which we will get to in the next show. The thing with sacking a city, though, is that it actually had a whole bunch of cultural mores surrounding what you could and could not do when sacking a city. These aren't barbarians we're talking about. These are civilized people, and there are rules governing how you can and can't destroy a city and enslave its inhabitants. It's very civilized. and There are actually quite a few rules like this throughout history that everyone sort of followed because otherwise shit got out of hand very quickly. It's like how today people don't use chemical weapons. Even Hitler didn't use chemical weapons. And it's not like anyone has a moral sense of gentlemanly conduct in war or anything. It's still fucking war. It's brutal and you want to win. But there are some things that you just don't do because it will make everything worse for everyone. If you use chemical weapons, even tear gas, then the enemy isn't going to sit back and go, Oh, I wonder if that's tear gas or if it's sarin gas. No. They're gonna use their own chemical weapons themselves, and by that point it's mutually assured destruction. Just like how you don't use little nuclear weapons, because then the enemy will use big nuclear weapons until the planet turns to glass, and that was the whole point of Oppenheimer. War. War never changes. There were similar rules in the ancient world, and one of them was surrounding what you could and could not do with besieged cities. So if you're defending a city which is under siege, then you were expected to hold on to that city for a reasonable period of time. You had to make it look like you were making an effort. You weren't exactly expected to keep the city, although that would be a bonus if you did, but you had to make it look good. And then, once it was apparent that you were either out of supplies, or you were diseased, or that there was no friendly army coming to save you and break the siege, at that point, you were allowed to surrender. It was within your honor to surrender at that point. It was the honorable thing to do. That was part of the unwritten rules of war. War never changes. And the attacking army also understood the dance. Everyone innately knows the rules. It was never written down, but everyone knows it. So an attacking army wouldn't really attack a city as hard as they could at the start because they had this gentleman's agreement going on. They knew that the people inside would hold out long enough to make it look like they tried and then they're going to surrender. And part of the deal was that if you surrendered before the attacking army got in, then you got all sorts of bonuses and deals and things. The attacking army was honor bound to treat you reasonably well. And that was the deal going all the way back to the Sumerians with the first ever cities. None of these rules was ever written down, but everyone knew them. There's a great example in the Crusades, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I can't remember exactly which crusade. I mean, there were tons of crusades, and I can't remember exactly when or where. So, forgive me for being vague, but I do remember an account of one castle that was being held by Crusaders right in the middle of Turkish territory, and it was being attacked by the Turks. And the Turks had an absolutely massive army attacking this castle. The Crusaders there knew that they were hopelessly outnumbered. There is no way that they can hold on to this castle. They know it, the Turks know it, and nobody wants to die for this foregone conclusion. Nobody wants to die on either side, but the rules have to be followed. There is a dance in play here, right? The defenders have to make it look good, and the attackers have to play nice. So one night, the Turkish army that's besieging this castle, they leave a letter at the door of the castle, and this letter says something like, "'Dearest brave crusaders, this is your pope, Popey McPopeface.' I hereby order you, in the name of the Jebus, to surrender the castle so that nobody needs to die for stupid reasons and we can all go about our day. Signed, Sincerely, Popey McPopeface. And the next morning, the leader of the Crusader army that's holding this castle, he finds this letter and he looks at it, he opens up and he takes a look at the letter and he says, well, oh, here we go. This is a letter that's very obviously from the Pope. And he's ordering us to surrender to this massive army that we have no hope in hell of beating. Oh well, gee, we sure would love to fight to the death, but you can't say no to the Pope, can you? I guess we will surrender the castle. And that was the dance. Everyone knows the dance. The Turks got the castle, and in return the Crusaders were treated reasonably well by the standards of the Captives of Ancient Warfare. And for an idea of how long this practice has lasted, this is exactly how the siege of Fort William Henry went down when the French and the British were fighting over the Americas. The French were besieging the fort, and while they were besieging it, they shot a small amount of cannon fire at it. Not much, just enough to make it look like they were making an effort to attack the fort. And inside, the English were holding on until it was clear that there were no reinforcements coming. So the conditions are met. And at that point, the English came out and surrendered in a very dignified manner, and everyone had a cup of tea. That's exactly how it went down. And if you think I just described the first half of the film The Last of the Mohicans, it's because I did. That movie is surprisingly historically accurate. So that's how sieges are supposed to work. There is a flip side to this, though. The gentleman's agreement only works if you honor it, if both sides play ball. If you don't surrender the city, then all bets are off. That's the other part that everyone understood. If you make us actually come in there and take the city by force, if we have to put in actual effort to capture the city, then once we're inside, we are going to create hell on earth. There are no rules. There is no mercy. Just the base savagery of human nature in the middle of a bloodlust. We will rape, murder, and enslave every living being inside of this city. And then we will burn it to the ground. The unspoken rule was that you could surrender right up until the point that the first siege weapon touched the walls of the city. If you surrendered at any point right up until the first ladders touch the wall, even if they're a meter away and you surrender at that point, you will get amazing clemency from the attacking army. It's not exactly everyone can be friends, but nobody needs to die an agonizing death or spend the rest of their lives as slaves. You can work out some concessions and everyone walks away a little bit better off. Those are the rules. but. If you don't surrender, it's not fun times. And the city of Saguntum, the one that Hannibal is besieging, they think they're going to get reinforcements from the Romans. So they do not surrender to Hannibal. Hannibal offered the standard deal, the gentleman's agreement, and Saguntum refused. Hannibal said, Rome don't give a fuck about you. They're not coming to help you. Please don't make me come in there and kill everyone. And Seguntum made the mistake of thinking that the Romans actually gave a fuck about people who were not Roman. They forced Hannibal to take the city. And he did, rather easily. And his army did despicably evil things in there. And Seguntum went from being a Roman city to being not a city virtually overnight. And the reinforcements bit there is critical. Rome was the patron of Seguntum. They had a treaty that very specifically said that Rome was contractually obligated to come to the defense of Seguntum if it were ever to be attacked. Hannibal attacked it, and Rome sent absolutely nobody. They ignored the pleas for help, and Hannibal wiped the city out because of it.: So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? Rome does not give a fuck about anyone who isn't Roman. So Rome had just tried to bully Hannibal, and Hannibal had responded by taking an important Roman city. The implication is very clear here. Every time you talk back to me, I'm going to take another city. I dare you to keep coming at me. Meanwhile, back in Carthage... Rome has sent another ambassador there to see what the hell is going on. They want to know if Hannibal is acting in an official capacity as a general of Carthage, or if he's gone all Colonel Kurtz. Basically, does Carthage endorse this Hannibal guy, and are we at war again? Or is he acting on his own? In which case, we're going to take it out on you instead of him, because we're shit scared of fighting Hannibal. And this scene is worth exploring, because it's so perfectly cinematic. Remember when I said that all of these Roman ambassadors were all arrogant dickwads? I mean, it's not uncommon for a Roman diplomat to force a king to hold a meeting with him while the Roman was taking a shit. That's the level of arrogance you get from Roman diplomats. Sulla would very famously take a laxative before a meeting with a pharaoh. And Lyndon B. Johnson actually used to do the same thing, so it's not exactly an ancient history thing. But this guy that's going to Carthage right now, this guy's no different. He's a high-ranking Roman, and he is absolutely full of himself. This ambassador's name was Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosis. So there's a clue, four names, important guy. And he's actually going to come back into this story later on. Fabius Maximus is the guy who invented the Fabian strategy, which we're going to be getting to later, but if you already know what that is, then give yourself a pat on the back. The Fabian strategy. I know this. If an apple and a feather fall at the same time... The Fabian strategy derives its name from the Roman general Quintus Fabius Maximus. He ran away, Lemon. Rather than engage in battle, he would retreat and retreat until the enemy grew fatigued and eventually made a mistake. Although I abhor it as a military strategy, it is the basis for all of my uh, personal relationships. He is a super important Roman at the time. Well, this Fabius cat, he says to the Roman Senate, I hold in my toga two writs, one for peace and one for war which shall I let drop. So what he's saying is, is Hannibal a rogue operative? Or is this guy acting on behalf of the nation of Carthage? And is it now Punic War II electric boogaloo? And you need to remember important context here. Nobody in Carthage has ever met Hannibal Barker. They have no idea what he even looks like. They knew his father, sure but Hannibal himself hasn't been to Carthage in about 20 years. It would have been very easy for Carthage to disavow Hannibal at this point. But Carthage had also been the victims of Rome's harsh treatment for that same period of time. Rome had been fucking them on reparations before the ink had even dried on the treaties at the end of the First Punic War. They were all Absolutely fucking sick of Romans coming in, stomping their sandals everywhere and telling them what to do. And this Fabius Maximus guy has just waltzed in off a ship and demanded an audience with the Senate right away, and now he's saying, what's it going to be? Peace or war? Choose now. And the Carthaginian Senate says to him, you choose. And at that point, Fabius Maximus dropped to the ground the scroll that held the peace treaty on it, and he held aloft the other, and he said, I choose war. And that tells you everything you need to know about Rome. When given the choice, they always prefer war. And so Carthage retroactively endorsed Hannibal's actions and the sacking of Saguntum, and the Second Punic War was officially on. So it's pretty clear to anyone watching that Hannibal and his army are heading to Rome with a bullet, which is concerning to Rome, because I think anyone would be concerned if someone had sworn to end their entire civilization with fire and steel, and then was on their way to that civilization at the head of a very large war host. That might be concerning, but Rome weren't panicking just yet. Perhaps they should have been, given what we know now. But it wasn't unreasonable at the time. They were fairly comfortable that Hannibal would have had a hard time actually getting to Rome. It's not exactly a straight shot. The easiest way to get from Spain to Italy would have been to just sail there across the Balearic Sea. But there's a crucial detail. Hannibal has no fleet. Part of the list of the things that Rome had made Carthage do at the end of the war was to disband their navy. So there are no ships that can take this army from Spain to the shores of Italy. That's a huge bonus for Rome. There's no chance that Hannibal is going to strike out of nowhere anywhere on the coast. There's only one real path he can actually take to get there. And that makes it quite easy to just plonk an army at this pass and hit Hannibal the moment he tries to break into Roman territory. Hannibal can either go by sea, except he has no ships, and even if he did, the Roman navy would be all over him like white on rice, or he can take the narrow land passage and run directly into that army that Rome has put in his way. There was a third option, though, but nobody really considered it an option, because nobody is fucking crazy enough to go through the Alps, right? 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 Yeah, well, yes and no are kind of your only two choices. For most men, sure. But there is a third option. The Alps were like a massive force field that protected Rome from a large chunk of the people who they were perpetually at war with, which is everyone. It is one of the greatest defensive advantages anyone in history has ever had, and it's a big reason why Rome were able to become Rome. They had this barrier blocking off about a third of the directions that Rome could be attacked from, where other nations, who might have been just as good, had maybe just one too many fronts to fight on, and are thus lost to history. The Alps are 1,200 kilometers of the highest mountains in Europe. There are 128 mountains in this range that are over 4 kilometers high which is the height at which scientists have determined, scientifically, that a mountain is, and I quote, fucking swole. There are hundreds of mountains within that range that don't hit quite as big, but they are still big mountains in their own right. The Alps are as imposing as all hell. It's hard enough for one person to survive trekking through the Alps. Nobody is crazy enough to send an entire army through there. Right? What Rome don't know, but they're going to become intimately aware of, is that Hannibal is a fucking baller. I've got balls of steel. If you discount an idea because it is theoretically or physically impossible chances are that Hannibal has already done it. He will do the impossible with such regularity that Roman armies will eventually prepare for the possibility that Hannibal could just drop out of the sky like a lightning bolt. But this is early in the piece, so they don't know the extent of Hannibal's massive balls, so nobody is prepared for this. We don't really know the size of the army that Hannibal was leading at this point. Polybius tells us that it was about 95,000 men, which is a number that he pulled completely out of his ass. Plus, it's in Polybius' interests to inflate this number, because Polybius loves the Romans, and they're about to get the ever-loving shit kicked out of them. So that's a lot easier to swallow if the army is really big. But it definitely was not 95,000 men. Hans Delbruck, who, if you don't know who he is, then you really should. The dude wrote some really good history. Delbruck puts Hannibal's numbers at about 36,000 men, which is still a large army and much more believable, but still take Delbruck's numbers with a grain of salt as well, because he tended to play up anyone who was German and undersell anyone who was not. We all have our biases, and Hannibal was not German, so he's probably underselling it a little bit. But that's the sort of range that we're dealing with here. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, but it might help you to visualize, that's the sort of army that the Barkers were building up in Spain, but that's not necessarily the army that crossed the Alps. So Hannibal's plan is to ambush Rome by cutting through this impossible mountain path that nobody is defending because it's supposed to be impossible. As Hannibal himself is said to have put it, Ot viam invenium ot faciam." I will either find a way or make one. And I don't know why he's speaking Latin there and not Punic, but take it up with the ancient historians. A lot of Hannibal's army are following him on this crazy venture through the Alps because they're super loyal to Hannibal, but thousands of them nope the fuck out of this trip before the march even starts. Which is fair, because the plan is absolutely fucking insane. And Hannibal agrees with them. It is indeed insane, and he just lets them go no hard feelings. So he's lost some of his forces already. Whatever the number was that he was mustering in Spain, he's losing thousands of them before they even get into the Alps. He does pick up some more people. There are heaps of Celts living in the Alps, and a few of them decide that they rather like the idea of capturing Rome. But for the most part, Hannibal is going to be bleeding way more troops than he gains for the rest of this episode. The reason that Hannibal is launching his attack right now is partially because Rome were incredibly rude to him and they didn't need to be, but historically it's because he saw that Rome was stretched pretty thin at this point. Rome was, for most of her history, at war with absolutely everybody at all times, and this was no different. They had pissed off pretty much everyone within a 10,000 kilometer radius and were fighting most of them at the same time. Hannibal knew this because Hannibal had one of the best spy networks of all time, probably the best until the Mongols hit the scene much, much later. So he saw that there were divisions in Rome and he timed his attack run perfectly. So off he goes to march on Rome through the Alps to exploit this weakness. And I'm not going to be going into too much detail about the actual passage through the Alps. You can find out about Hannibal's passage through the Alps absolutely everywhere else. It's what everyone talks about. It is the most famous thing about the guy, and it's the one thing that every historian goes on about. And I don't want to waste our time by doing exactly the same shit as everyone else. That's how we miss out about the cool details, like the Battle of Ticinus or the snake bombs. Because everyone is so obsessed with doing the Uncle Ben origin story again. We get it. Power, responsibility, whatever. Give me Spider-Man. Hannibal crosses the Alps and that's pretty much it. Oh yeah, and I dropped that in like it was nothing, but in the next episode we are going to be talking about the snake bombs. Bombs made of snakes. Yeah, how is that somehow less important than the Alps, Delbrook? If you don't know how all of this went down, the Alps that is, not the snake bombs, Go and find any history ever from this period. It's the only thing that they all explore in detail. The only bits that we really need to know ourselves are that it was even more difficult than you might think. Whatever difficulty you're imagining, and imagine that it is very difficult, ramp that up by about a thousand. All throughout the Alps, there are a bunch of native tribes of people who are loosely defined as Celts. Some historians translate it as Celt, some translate it as Gauls, it's either or. They're Gauls because they're in Gaul, but culturally they identify as Celts, which is a type of people all across Europe, as I've mentioned, and I will keep disambiguating this when I feel I need to, because it gets very confusing. And all of the historians use the same terms interchangeably, and so do I. A very loose syllogism is that, All Gauls are Celts, but not every Celt is a Gaul. Obviously, this is oversimplified, but that's the benefit of being able to do this show and not being a historian. I can oversimplify. So Hannibal tries to get these Celts on his side, because he wants as many people on his side as he can get. He cannot afford to be choosy. And a lot of them do rally to his banner and sign up for Team Hannibal, because I cannot overstate... Just how much Rome has been pissing off a lot of people for a couple of hundred years. But not all of these Celts are keen to sign up with Hannibal. There are a couple of tribes who are actually allied to Rome, but for the most part, the Celts are not an affiliated peoples. They just fucking hate everyone equally because Celts are a contentious folk who hate anything that breathes, and they will fight with no provocation whatsoever. Brothers and sisters are natural enemies, like Englishmen and Scots, or Welshmen and Scots, or Japanese and Scots, or Scots and other Scots. Damn Scots! They ruined Scotland! You Scots sure are a contentious people. You just made an enemy for life! So Hannibal has a bunch of Celts who are guiding him through the mountains, there's a bunch of other Celts who are trying to kill him, and he's never quite sure who is who because of how shady they all were. The histories state that these Celts slash Gauls are in an official civil war when Hannibal gets there, and I believe it because when are they not in a civil war? France is on fire right now, and this is as good as France has been in a very long time. I don't know when you're listening to this show, but I am fairly confident that there is some reason that the French are currently rioting in the streets. I guarantee that there will be something, no matter what time you're listening to this show. So there are some Celts who are helping Hannibal, and others are trying to murder him and his entire army. And all of this is on top of the most arduous trek that you can possibly imagine. You know the part in Fellowship of the Ring when they're trying to scale the mountain Karajas and Saruman is rap-battling them to cause avalanches? Think that. That's exactly what it is like. And yes, I'm aware that in the books it was the mountain itself that was trying to kill the Fellowship because the mountain itself was a dick, but the movie version makes more sense. And also, why did Gandalf let Frodo, of all people, decide which way to go, but then not tell anyone that the dwarves of Moria had been murdered by an ancient flaming shadow demon god? You know. That seems like crucial context that he may have included so that Frodo could make a better decision. This has absolutely nothing to do with the story of Hannibal. I'm just a huge Lord of the Rings nerd, and this is the kind of stuff I think about when it gets late at night. Let the ring bearer decide. So it's snowing the wind is threatening to rip people off the cliffs, the hobbits are nearly dying, and Gandalf says, fuck it, I'd rather deal with goblins and an actual demon than to try and cross this mountain. That's exactly the conditions that Hannibal's army is attempting to cross the Alps in. Except that instead of Christopher Lee trying to kill them, it's angry Frenchmen. Which is actually kind of the same thing. Christopher Lee was a Merovingian. He could trace his lineage all the way back to Charlemagne. So, yeah, that's something you may not know. So Hannibal loses a shitload of men to the mountain itself. He loses a ton of dudes in ambushes and skirmishes with the locals along the way, and he loses nearly all of his elephants. It is a rough trip all round, and about half of his army does not make it out the other side. Hannibal's own personal records from this period are pretty much... Have you ever tried to herd an elephant up a mountain? It is exactly as difficult as you think it would be. Essentially, all you need to know is that Hannibal's rationale was the Romans are going to be expecting me to go the non-suicide route, so naturally I'm going to take the suicide route, and that's exactly how things panned out. The historian Livy talks about the journey that Hannibal took and how everyone is tired and cold and starving and dying and how it takes weeks to get through this treacherous mountain pass, and just, when all hope seems lost at the most narratively perfect moment, Hannibal has this amazing speech, which absolutely happened because Livy said so, even though he lived over a century later and nobody was taking notes at the time, but it's a great speech, so why not? Here's Livy. Seeing their despair... Hannibal rode ahead, and, at a point of advantage which afforded a prospect of the vast extent of country before him, he gave the order to halt. Pointing to Italy far below, in the Po Valley, in the foothills of the Alps, "'My men,' he said, "'you are at this moment passing the protective barrier of Italy. "'Nay, more. "'You are walking over the very walls of Rome.' Henceforward, all will be easygoing. No more hills to climb. After a fight or two, you'll have the capital of Italy, the citadel of Rome, in the hollow of your hands. And he wasn't far wrong. He's going to have way more problems actually crossing the Alps than he is fighting the Romans, who were supposed to be the best army in the world at the time. But Hannibal is just that good. So Hannibal is en route to Rome from Spain via the Alps, which nobody had ever done because the idea is just fucking crazy. Inconceivable! Now, Rome are not unaware that Hannibal is up to some kind of shenanigans. They don't know the precise nature of those shenanigans, but they do know of the existence of shenanigans. Shenanigans are afoot, and Rome is being cautious. They don't know how crazy Hannibal is, but they're aware that he is not entirely sane. Now, remember that Hannibal declared war on Rome, and after the fact, Carthage also declared war on Rome because Hannibal done already gone and sacked Saguntum. so in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Rome cannot let this stand. They have to respond. They can get around to going to war with Carthage later, that's always on the table, but right now, there is a motherfucking Barker on the loose, and they are scared of Barkers. So they need to deal with this quicksmart. And not knowing precisely how insane Hannibal was, they didn't expect him to go through the Suicide Mountain Pass. So Rome went to intercept Hannibal on the more sensible land passage between Rome and Spain. They gather up an army and they send it off to fight Hannibal. And the guy that is in charge of this army is Publius Cornelius Scipio. No, not that Publius Cornelius Scipio, not the famous one, the other one. This Scipio is that Scipio's father. To try and save everyone's sanity keeping up with this, if you know your Roman history, there is a super, super famous general named Scipio Africanus. He's like Roman George Washington. He's one of the most famous Romans ever. Well, the guy that is leading the army right now to fight Hannibal, that guy is Scipio Africanus' father, who also happens to have exactly the same name. It could get even more confusing, because Scipio Africanus is also in this army at the same time. He is present for all of these battles, but he's not the man in charge. He's not the superstar Scipio Africanus yet. So we don't talk about him until the next show, pretty much, but he is there, and he is taking notes. He is certainly present, but when I say Scipio, I mean the father. Publius Cornelius Scipio the Elder was a consul. Rome always had two presidents called consuls, and Scipio was one of them at this point. And he's leading the army to go and meet Hannibal head-on, because that's where all the glory is. Romans were mostly motivated by glory, so that's why the president is personally leading the army to go and fight the most badass motherfucker in history. Because that's how you get the glory. you got to get your hands dirty. So Scipio the Elder has gathered up an army and he marches towards Spain to go and give this Hannibal cat a right proper spanking and put him back in his place. And if Hannibal is supposed to be heading to Rome and we're heading to Spain, then of course we're going to meet somewhere in the middle where we can engage in glorious combat. All you do is kill, kill, kill. The crowd don't want a butcher, they want a hero. They want them to keep coming back. So they're just pieces remember you are an entertainer? Because an encounter battle is inevitable. There is only one way to go from Spain to Rome, right? But as Scipio's army is on the march, they happen to camp in the town of Marseille on the way. And Scipio meets with the mayor of Marseille and he says, I'm looking for a guy named Hannibal. Have you seen him? He's about yay high, hates Rome, has a bunch of war elephants. Send anyone like that. And the mayor of Marseille says, Yeah, I saw him which is to say I seen him, he took off into the Alps to try and outflank you. Now, this is insane. You do not cross the Alps at any point, let alone in winter. I forgot to mention that all of this is taking place in November. It is almost winter. This is batshit fucking crazy. The Alps are cold in summer. What the hell is going on here? So Scipio doesn't quite believe the mayor of Marseille. But Hannibal is a barker. And all Barkers are insane. So Scipio has a sneaking suspicion that maybe this guy is telling the truth, and maybe Hannibal has managed to outflank him. But still, the Alps? In winter? That's crazy even for a Barker. So Scipio has an each way bet. He sends the majority of his troops onwards to Spain to continue with the mission. Plan A, meet the Carthaginian army head-on on on the road to Rome. But Scipio himself, wanting the glory, he's going to take a small detachment and head back towards Rome. He's going to head to the pass where the Alps descend into Italy and just check it out. You know, just in case Hannibal is indeed a crazy motherfucker and went through the Alps. Scipio has left his army behind to do this, they're continuing on to Spain, but because Scipio was one of the consuls, one of the two leaders of Rome, he was able to commandeer troops along the way, just by saying, I am the law, and you all follow me now, and no one really had any choice. So by the time he hits the mountains, he actually has a fair army of his own. Remember, he'd left that original army marching to Spain, his good consular army, so he needs another one if he's going to take on Hannibal on the random crazy chance that Hannibal actually did go through the Alps. It's not a great army. It's not the standing army that he set out from Rome with. It's a pickup army, but it's a Roman army nonetheless. He's got a bit over four legions, so about 18,000 men when you count everyone. They haven't really trained together, and they don't have that kind of cohesion but Romans are Romans, they have systems in place for a reason, a reason I went into in great detail in the last show, so these guys don't lose too much of their efficacy just because they're getting picked up at random villages along the way. They all know how to fall into line and throw pila. it's like riding a bike. Scipio and this ragtag bunch are traveling towards the mountains along the banks of the river Tycanus. Rivers, as they tend to do, run down from mountains, so the Romans were essentially tracking the river Tychonus back up its path until they found Hannibal. But the problem is that sometimes, when you go looking for Hannibal, sometimes you find Hannibal. What happens next is known as the Battle of Tychonus. Now, it needs to be said that Hannibal was not up for this fight. If ever there was a time for Rome to catch Hannibal with his knickers down, this is it. The Carthaginians are not in a good way at all. Hannibal and his army had just fought their way through the Alps for weeks. They are proper rooted. It was not an easy journey. A lot of his troops died along the way. A lot more were sick and frostbitten and dying. they lost heaps of men to skirmishes with the locals. they lost a bunch more people just falling off the mountain... They've only got a couple of elephants left because elephants, as it turns out, are not alpine creatures. This is not a great position to be in. Ideally, Hannibal would have liked a couple of minutes, at least, to just catch his breath, have a drink, and give his troops some time for a cup of tea before they had to fight the Romans. But you can only play the hand that you've been dealt. And this is a shit hand, don't get me wrong, it's a pair of twos, tops. But there's also a joker in that hand. And that joker is the fact that Hannibal Barker is the god of war. A half-dead army coming out of a suicide march through the Alps, faced with a better-equipped army that outnumbers him three to one? Hannibal likes those odds. That makes it interesting. Hannibal assesses the situation. He has his people scout out the Romans, and he begins to formulate a plan. The Romans have a bigger army, on paper, but it's not the kind of army that Rome would generally put together. That army is on its way to Spain, heading in the wrong direction. This army is whoever Scipio managed to recruit along the way. Hey you! Join the navy! So it wasn't the typical heavy infantry army that you expect from Rome. It was actually made mostly of light cavalry and skirmishers, which they called Willites. I went into great depth on skirmishes in the last show, so I wouldn't have to do it again here every time. So if you need a refresher, go to about halfway through that show. So the Roman army is skirmisher heavy. Skirmishers are very good in certain situations. They're great in certain situations, but they have plenty of weaknesses too. And one of the weaknesses of skirmishers is cavalry. It's a rock-paper-scissors kind of situation, a Pokemon weakness chart. Skirmishers are strong against heavy infantry, but weak against cavalry. And Hannibal just so happens to have the best cavalry in the world. So he tells most of his army to sit this one out. We're going all in on cavalry for this fight. This is going to be a horsey battle. So Hannibal's army has two major types of cavalry in this fight. He has the Numidians, who I spoke about last time. They were the light cavalry, and they were demons. They're faster than everyone else, and they can shoot you while they're on the move. They're a nightmare to deal with. He also has a bunch of Berbers, or Libyans, who are heavy cavalry, and they don't do the hit-and-fade thing that the Numidians do best. These Berbers just run directly into infantry and wreck everyone's shit. They're not exactly subtle. There's something I forgot to mention about Hannibal's cavalry in the last show, and it's important. It's going to come up a lot. Not only are they the best cavalry in the world at this point, they're also astonishingly good counter-cavalry. As a rule, cavalry are great against infantry, but Hannibal's cavalry had the bonus of being particularly effective against other cavalry. So these guys would engage the enemy cavalry, send them running and then themselves would run amok on the battlefield unchecked because the other side didn't have cavalry anymore. And the reason that the Numidians and the Libyans are such good counter-cavalry comes down to the usual boring stuff. They were better trained, had better weapons, they were better horses. But there is one great detail here. You're going to love this. Numidian horses were absolute dicks. As in, the horses themselves were jerks. The Numidians, slash Berbers, slash Moors, slash Zanata, they're all the same thing, they trained their horses to be bullies. These horses were just straight up mean to other horses. The horses themselves were warriors. They would kick and bite and spit at enemy horses in combat, which made the enemy horses scared of going anywhere near Numidian horses. Roman cavalry horses were used to just carrying a guy who did all the fighting. They were not used to being attacked by other horses who are spitting in their eyes, so this frightens them. It's not often in history that the horse itself is also a soldier, not just the guy riding it. So Hannibal has a lot more cavalry, and the cavalry he has is much better, and all of his horses are jerks. It is a great combination. So his plan is he's going to hammer the Romans with his heavy cavalry right down the middle. And then he's going to have his light cavalry drive off the enemy cavalry and then just sort of hang back on the sides and look for a weakness to exploit. It's a pretty basic game plan. Everyone does this. But when you've got this kind of advantage, you don't want to overcomplicate things. Scipio, for his part, He happens to have a plan, too. And his plan is this. And I need everyone to pay attention to this, because it's going to set a trend. Scipio, who, remember, is a consul and one of two people in charge of Rome at the time, this is his plan for taking on the son of the best general the Romans had ever faced. And this is Scipio's plan. Scipio says... Hannibal is probably going to attack us with his light cavalry in a direct assault. Light cavalry, not heavy, because I never bothered to check to see if he even has heavy cavalry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deploy all of my skirmishers in the front row so that they can shoot the Carthaginian light cavalry before they can even get in close for combat. I have absolutely no tactical reasoning for this decision. None of it is based on intelligence or reconnaissance or history. It just came to me in a dream last night. I am a military genius. Nobody questioned me. Which, as you can guess, is not the greatest base for a plan. So, something worth quickly noting is that Hannibal and Scipio have faced off before. Once. Very briefly. Just before Hannibal went into the Alps, Scipio's army did manage to briefly catch up with him. I know I made it sound like he didn't, but the story flowed better. Remember, always check your sources. So Scipio's army does briefly catch up with Hannibal. But something that Hannibal is known for, that all good commanders know, and is actually in the art of war, is that you never fight unless you're the one who chooses the battle, if you can help it. And when Scipio caught Hannibal in Spain, Hannibal had not chosen the conditions for that battle, so he retreated. This is absolutely the most sensible thing to do, and it's why Hannibal is the best. He was caught unprepared, so he's just going to retreat. He doesn't care about honor or cowardice or how anything looks or anything bullshit like that. He is all about the cold mathematics of warfare. This is a surprise encounter battle. I have not dictated the terms. I'm not going to do something stupid. And this completely short circuits Scipio's Roman brain. He physically cannot understand somebody running away from a battle. He just can't comprehend it. So he gets it into his head that Hannibal is scared of him and that all Carthaginians are cowards who cannot fight. This is absolutely untrue, of course, but that's how the Romans saw it. It's stupid when we look at it now, but those were different times. And I mean, Scipio was an idiot, don't get me wrong. But back then, most Romans were idiots in this period. Seriously, there are going to be exactly two Roman commanders in this entire story who are not rank imbeciles and they won't come in until right at the end, and the Roman people will actually end up turning on both of them because they were not imbeciles. So Scipio gets it into his head that Hannibal is a coward, this entire Carthaginian army of all a bunch of chumps, and that this whole thing is going to be over by brunch. Bad luck for the boys at the back, we're going to have killed this entire Carthaginian army before you guys even make it to the fight. You know, that all-over-by-Christmas thinking that always works so well. Livy has Scipio giving a big speech to all of his soldiers before the battle that says that these Carthaginians are all cowards and we're going to beat them all comfortably. Hell, they ran away from us last time. They'll probably run away from us again now. But not only that, they've just come through the Alps. They're all half dead already. It's going to be easy to finish the job. It's actually worth quoting Livy here, who is supposedly quoting Scipio, but is obviously making it all up. But here's Livy again, quoting Scipio. My men, let me tell you of what sort of warfare you must expect. It will be against an enemy you defeated in the last war, both on land and at sea. An enemy from whom you have exacted tribute for twenty years. An enemy from whom you took Sicily and Sardinia as prizes of war. You, therefore, will enter upon it with the high hearts of victors, they with the despondency of beaten men, nay, more, Their readiness to fight at all is due not to courage, but to necessity. Unless you can imagine an enemy who declines combat when his army was intact has better hopes of success now that he's lost two-thirds of his troops during the passage of the Alps? Perhaps you will answer that, though they are few, they are nonetheless brave and strong. They are irresistible fighters. Nonsense! Nonsense! They are ghosts and shadows of men already half-dead with hunger, cold, dirt, and neglect. All their strength has been crushed and beaten out of them by the alpine crags. Cold has dried them up. Snowstorms have frozen their sinews stiff. Their hands and feet frostbitten, their horses lame and enfeebled. They have not a weapon amongst them which is not damaged or broken. What an army! Why, you'll not be facing an army at all. Only the dregs of what were once men. My chief fear is that we will have to admit that it was the Alps, not we, who conquered Hannibal. Ah, well, perhaps it is right that the gods, without human aid, should have fought the first stages of a war with treaty breakers like these. We, who after heaven have suffered from their treachery, have the duty of bringing only that war to its conclusion. End quote. So saith Scipio the Elder. According to Livy, who came along a couple of hundred years later, but somehow he knew exactly how that entire speech went down. But, suffice it to say, the Romans thought that they were going to be in for a soft victory at the Battle of Ticinus. Every Roman was fully expecting to win, and win comfortably. So Scipio sets up a screening force of his own light cavalry and has them shielding his huge army of welites, his skirmishers. The idea is that these guys, who have Pele and shields and whatnot, will be able to shoot the horses while being able to protect themselves from the bows of the Numidians. And then, when Carthage inevitably runs away, because they're cowards and they are going to run away, we can chase after them and capture a whole bunch of slaves, and we'll all be rich and famous and we'll get a triumph back in Rome. Remember, None of this is based on any sort of objective reality. Scipio's battle plan is based entirely on what he hopes Hannibal is going to do. And they all line up for battle ready to do just that. Except that it isn't Carthage's light cavalry that is heading towards them. It's Carthage's big, fuck-off, heavy cavalry that Rome didn't know about because Scipio never bothered to check. And this big, fuck-off, heavy cavalry isn't looking to do the hit-and-fade ranged attacks. No, these are guys who are super keen to get to know you on a very up-close and personal level. They do not respect the idea of personal space. The Romans have their own light cavalry up front. They're supposed to be running a blocking play for the skirmishers behind them. Neither of these forces are capable of handling heavy cavalry. They're all expecting some half-naked dudes on ponies shooting small bows at them. What they see are 6,000 armored horses with armored soldiers, each of them holding a sword the size of a traffic light. The Roman cavalry shit themselves first. They panic and rout almost immediately. Every single one of them turn around and try to gallop away because they are about to be horribly, horribly murdered. But they can't escape because right behind them are the Willites, the guys they're supposed to be protecting. But, remember, this is life and death, so fuck those guys. The Roman cavalry runs straight into the Roman skirmishers. And now it's the skirmishers who break. They see their own cavalry running as fast as possible, and they get the idea that maybe they should try and keep up. They turn around and they try to run. But they're on foot, so they're slower than the guys on horseback, so everyone just gets tangled up. And meanwhile, the Libyan and Spanish heavy cavalry are getting closer and closer, very keen to introduce themselves. And now Scipio, driven by his cheese dream of a battle plan, thinks that the only way to counter heavy cavalry is with his own heavy cavalry. So he sends those guys in to deal with the Libyans. One, the Roman cavalry is pretty shit compared to the guys that Hannibal is using. And two, his own troops are in the way. So now the majority of the Roman army is sandwiched between the two forces of heavy cavalry. While all of this has been happening the Carthaginian light cavalry has been kept in reserve, waiting in the wings to exploit any weaknesses they see in the Roman lines. And what they see now is an 18,000-man strong Benny Hill show of people falling over each other trying to get away. So it is just candy land for these Numidians. They actually manage to ride around the outside of the Roman army entirely and get in behind them, and they start reaping an unholy body count. The Romans were not expecting to be hit from anywhere, let alone behind, so this is carnage. The Numidians actually make it all the way to Scipio's command group at the back of the Roman ranks. Now, Scipio, he was not Alexander the Great. Alexander was a fucking madman who wanted to be the first person into battle. Scipio was not. Scipio tried to be as far away from the battle as he possibly could, but now the battle had come to him. Scipio and his small command group actually find themselves in a fight to death with these Numidian-like cavalry. Scipio himself goes toe-to-toe with one of these Numidians, and this guy kicks the ever-loving shit out of him. Scipio is seriously wounded in this engagement. He is about to be killed when, all of a sudden, his 16-year-old son, who also happens to be in the cavalry at this battle... His son manages to fight his way to his father and rescue him and drag him away from the battle in the nick of time. The son is also named Publius Cornelius Scipio, but this time it actually is the famous one, Scipio Africanus. But he's not going to get famous till later. Scipio the Elder is seriously wounded. All of my sources are sort of blurring together in my head as I recount this battle, so I can't relate the exact nature of the injury, but it's often referred to loosely as an upper leg wound, which means he probably got stabbed in the butt or the dick. Both of which are pretty funny, but I'm going to say that he was stabbed right up Main Street. Uh, ah, Right up Main Street! So if you're one of those people who is a stickler for accuracy, he was seriously wounded, that much we do know, but we don't really know where. If you want a bit of flavor that I may or may not have invented, he was sodomized with a sword. But this is a huge deal either way. One of the consuls nearly died, and his army was defeated in open battle. This is like if Churchill and Montgomery were both the same person in World War II, and they got buttfucked with a Sturmgewehr. It is confronting. And the Romans were absolutely not used to losing at all, so this is a disaster. The Roman army gets murked at the Battle of Tychonus. They're forced into a retreat, and the Carthaginians are fighting them the entire way. It's not a rout. It's a fighting retreat. So it's not as bad as it could have been, but it is a defeat. And the Roman army is never defeated. And that's the Battle of Tychonus. A battle which is often overlooked, it's very rare that people mention it outside of there was a cavalry battle at the start of the war, and I wanted to fix that because a consul gets stabbed in the butt. There are no hard and fast numbers as to how many Romans were killed in this battle, but the historical consensus is a lot. And remember, this is a people who were not used to losing anyone. They've now lost a lot. Over the next few years, Hannibal is going to kill over 100,000 Roman soldiers. 10% of all military-aged Roman men in this period are going to die directly because of Hannibal Barker. He is Rome's worst nightmare. And this is their first ever taste. Their first engagement with Hannibal Barker, a Carthaginian army who was half dead after crossing the Alps, and Hannibal does it comfortably. He didn't even use most of his army. He's just doing trick shots. The bulk of his infantry just sat on a hill with a picnic basket and watched the show. He didn't even use the elephants. Hannibal is just clowning Scipio right now. Eventually, the Romans managed to fight their way back to a temporary bridge that they'd made across the River Ticinus, and then after they crossed, they destroyed the bridge, at which point they were relatively safe from Hannibal for the time being. But that wouldn't last long. Hannibal probably could have chased after the Romans at this point and murdered a whole bunch more of them, but he really just needs a cup of tea right now. He's just walked out of the Alps, he's cold, he's tired, he's fought the Roman army, this dude needs a beer more than anyone has ever needed a beer. So the Romans get to live. For now of interest is the fact that both sides of this conflict actually used Celtic mercenaries to supplement their forces. I've spoken at length about how Carthage hired these guys, but the Romans did it too. At the Battle of Tychonus, they actually had about 2,000 Celts in their ranks. The Romans had a bunch of Gallic Quislings who would rather be fighting for the Romans than against them, so they're on the Roman side at this point. And one of Hannibal's major goals throughout this entire campaign is to offer an alternative to all of these people who sided with Rome because they felt they had no other choice. So there's a couple of thousand Celts in this Roman army. And after this first ass-kicking at the River Ticinus, these Celts start questioning the wisdom of that alliance. So once the Romans had retreated over the river, they've consolidated back at their camp and everyone's trying to process what happened, That night, these Celts got together and they had a bit of a think about how this war looked like it was going, and they came to realize that maybe they'd picked the wrong side. So, while their Roman allies were sleeping, these Celts went around and murdered them and deserted. Ah, look at them, sleeping like little angels. Spare no one. And the next morning, they showed up at Hannibal's camp and said, Hey, we've had a think about it, and we want to switch sides. Can we join your army now? We brought you a couple of thousand Roman heads for your collection, if that sweetens the deal. And Hannibal said, Well, I've already got a bunch of Roman skulls, but they're not this fresh, so uh, welcome aboard. Well, actually, what he did was send them back to their own tribes. And this is good for Hannibal for a couple of reasons. First, it shows clemency. This is a big deal. This is based Hannibal. He's not going to be a dick about winning. He's fair. Secondly, these guys get to go back home and talk about how Hannibal kicks absolute ass and maybe we should be fighting for him instead, giving Hannibal much-needed reinforcements. This is all part of the plan. So that's the Battle of Tychonus. The score is now 1-0 Carthage. It needs to be said that this was not a major victory for the Carthaginians, nor was it a major loss for the Romans, but it was still a loss. Romans are not used to losing at all, so this is concerning. But worse for Rome, the battle itself was never in question. Hannibal kicked the shit out of the Romans and never once looked like losing. Rome lost a few thousand troops in this battle, but in terms of what was actually won and lost in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that many men. But it is a huge blow to Roman morale. It messes with their heads. So the Romans retreat, and Hannibal continues to march towards the Eternal City with the intent of setting it on fire. And more and more of the local people that Rome had been shitting on for centuries decide they want to join him along the way. The Celts, Gauls, whatever you want to call them, those guys turning on Rome and going over to Hannibal's side is a much bigger deal than it might seem. Because that was a large part of Hannibal's plan this whole time. Rome has been treating everyone like shit for a long time now, but nobody had the martial strength necessary to tell them to fuck off. So Rome has been bullying pretty much everyone they came across. Most of the people in this region of the world had the shits with Rome. And Hannibal was banking on this. Because he didn't have that big of an army himself. He started crossing the Alps with maybe 40,000 men, which is a big army, but nowhere near Roman standards. And he loses about half of that by the time he gets out of the Alps, which is one hell of an attrition rate. And the army he has, that's the only army he's going to get for the rest of the campaign, unless he finds locals willing to join up. Because of how the First Punic War ended, there isn't really a decent way for Carthage to get people from Africa over to Italy to reinforce Hannibal. They'd have to get through a Roman blockade, and since nobody is as good as Hannibal, they're probably not going to be able to do it. So Hannibal is effectively on his own. But that's fine, because to a Barker, being surrounded just means that you can now attack in any direction. But he does need troops, so Hannibal's whole plan is to go around to everyone in the region that isn't Roman and say, Hey, I know you're all sick of Rome. Well, I'm going to go and kick the shit out of Rome. Do you want to sign up and be part of that shit-kicking? But the problem was that not many people did. Hannibal was having trouble recruiting. Because while everyone did indeed have the shits with Rome... Rome was seen to be almost invincible. They were this megalithic entity that you just couldn't hope to win against. So these tribes, the Gauls and the Celts and the Spanish and the Samnites and everyone, they're all saying, Look, I get it. You're the son of Hamilcar, and that guy was an absolute fucking boss, we do not deny. He kicked Roman ass." But we don't know if you're as good as your dad, so it's not worth pissing off the Romans, because if we back you and you lose, then the Romans are going to wipe us off the face of the earth. Hannibal didn't have the runs on the board to convince everyone that he could potentially beat Rome. And then, immediately after exiting the Alps and with a half-dead army, he meets Rome in a field battle and comfortably wins. Revolutions, you follow? revolutions Mm -hmm. that pumps the numbers for Hannibal stock in a big big way and suddenly people start wanting to buy Hannibal coin and he starts getting reinforcements so this whole thing is like an audition for Hannibal and he is acing it Mm -hmm. with a common denominator Mm I should take a quick moment here to address something that might not be immediately apparent. You probably know this, but it always bears repeating. Nothing in the ancient world happened quickly. What is going on in this story is happening quickly, by the standards of the ancient world, but it's not happening quickly as we would see it. Everything back then takes a very long time. So this is going to sound like Hannibal is going to come screaming out of the Alps and go bang, 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 and decimate the Romans in a few days, but all of this takes months to years to happen. Remember, everyone is walking everywhere at the pace of the slowest person. The absolute fastest that you can go is the speed of a horse, but not everyone has a horse, so you're walking really slowly. All of this is happening at a snail's pace. Oh, and you also need to remember that a lot of the time, There isn't actually anything happening at all. I'm only showing you the good bits because that's how entertainment works, but armies didn't operate the entire year all round. They take every winter off because winter is just fucked. It's a horrible season. I am not the only person in history who thinks that. Hannibal is notable in history simply because he occasionally fights in the winter. But even then, he only does it a couple of times. Part of the reason that nobody expected Hannibal to cross the Alps in the first place was because it was November, and you wouldn't do that when it was snowing, because that's just mental. So remember, as I'm regaling this story, it's going to sound like it's happening at breakneck speed, but it's actually taking months, stretching into years, for all of this to happen. And when it starts snowing, everyone just finds a town to settle in until the next spring. You can just write off the months of December, January, February. They are out of the question. Nobody does anything. So the first real meeting between Hannibal and Rome did not go well for the Romans. They expected an easy victory and instead copped a convincing, if not devastating, defeat. Publius Cornelius Scipio, one of the consuls, has just, quite literally, had his ass kicked in the first skirmish with Carthage at the river Tycanus. The term literally gets thrown around a lot, and it doesn't mean what people seem to think it means. I you I don't think it means what you think it means. But when I say literally, I mean it. Scipio literally got his ass kicked, as in a Numidian, put a boot in Scipio's ass. Get. Boot. Scipio was not expecting to be anywhere near the actual fighting, and Hannibal brought the fighting to him. And Scipio was not into that at all. And he got seriously injured because he wasn't a fighter. It's only the fact that his son was also an exceptional badass on par with Hannibal and came to his rescue that Scipio did not get horribly murdered that day. He got real lucky. So Scipio says, right, this Hannibal guy is legit and he's already here in Rome. I'm out injured for the rest of the season. It's time for the other console to step up. That's one of the reasons that Rome had two consoles. A lot of the time, most of the time, it is the worst possible system of government, but there are rare examples where it works well, like when one of your presidents gets sodomized with a sword. So Scipio tags the other console into what is now officially the Second Punic War. The other console was Tiberius Sempronius Longus. For anyone who didn't understand why the Monty Python Biggest Dickest joke was funny, maybe you're starting to get the idea by now. Tiberius Sempronius Longus was in Sicily at that point, which is about as far away as you can be at the time and still be in Italy. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! Considering that Rome had very recently annexed Sicily and made it Italian, and that's what everyone is upset about in the first place. So Sempronius grabs his army and he heads north towards the Carthaginian army. It took him 41 days to get there, which is a very long time by our standards, but this is light speed in those days. He takes his army and he links up and reinforces Scipio, who had been defeated but had managed to escape with most of his army intact, if not his butt. Now, the history isn't really clear about what happens next. We honestly don't know what actually happened. Every historian, ancient and modern, has their own take on what happened. So there's Hannibal's army on one side of a river, and on the other side, there are now two Roman armies. There's the ragtag roughnecks that Scipio rounded up on his way to intercept Hannibal and just got spanked at the Ticinus, But now there's a proper Roman army led by Tiberius Sempronius Longus joining them. But what we don't know is if these two armies ever actually combined, or if they operated separately. We don't know what the deal was. Remember how I said that the two console system was usually a terrible way to do things? Well, that's the situation here. Usually, what happened was that the two consoles were from opposite ends of the political spectrum, and they usually did not like each other at all. On a point of order. On relevance, Mr. Speaker. Well, hang on. Sit down. I'm still hearing... You sit down, Buffett. You sit down. Imagine the government and opposition leaders of the country that you're currently living in right now, imagine that they are both in charge at the same time, and they can cancel out each other's orders at any time. You sit down, Buffett. Do you think that would be chaos? If you said yes, then you're absolutely correct. It was indeed chaos. The system the Romans actually had, the real thing that they did, was that one guy would be in command one day, and then the next day, the other guy would be in command, and they alternated day by day. Even if they had diametrically opposed ideas about how the campaign or the battle should be waged, they alternated. So if one console says, I think we should do X, and the other console says, I think we should do Y then that guy could just wait until tomorrow when he's in charge and do it then. And then the day after that, the first guy could put it all back the way there was. And if you think this is a stupid system, you are absolutely correct, and Hannibal is about to demonstrate why. And another note that we really need to be across. Roman names are fucked. We have skimmed over this in the past, but it bears getting into in detail. I'm going to do a rather simplistic rundown, but this is a freakishly complicated subject, and there is a whole bunch of religious and cultural bullshit that I'm leaving out, and people could and have written entire dissertations about this. But Roman names are crazy complex. They have something called the tria nomina, or three names. So you had your praenomen which is your personal name. That's the name chosen by your parents. But there's a whole bunch of customs about what you can and can't call your children, which is why so many Romans happen to have exactly the same name as their parents and everything gets confusing. That's the Praenomen. My Praenomen would be Damian. Then there's the Nomen Gentilicum. A gens was your clan or family. Genetic, you get that right? So for me, that's Smith. My gens is Smith. I'm Damien of Clan Smith. Then they had something called the Cognomen. And I'll lump the Agnomen in here as well. It's the same thing as far as we care for this show. The Cognomen was a third name that was actually part of your name, kind of like how we have middle names, but way more important. The Cognomen was kind of a nickname that could also be your actual name. Sometimes the Cognomen was given to you because you did something awesome. Publius Scipio Africanus got the Africanus part because he's the guy that eventually beats Hannibal in Africa. So he gets to be Scipio Africanus, Scipio the king of Africa. But the cognomen could also be something that the Romans thought was both funny and mean. You all know who Julius Caesar was, right? Well, Caesar was his cognomen. His name was Gaius, and he was from the Gens Julia. Gaius Julius, but Caesar was his cognomen because people from his family line, the Julians, happened to have hereditary male pattern baldness. The word Caesares is Latin for having a full head of hair. So the name Caesar, which will come to mean emperor in a number of languages, is actually an ironic pejorative insult to bald people. So that's the three names, the Tria Namina. So I would be Damien Smith Drama. Damien, because that's the name that my parents gave me. Smith, because I'm from the gens Smith. And Drama, because one of my old flatmates thought that I carried on like Drama from Entourage and it kind of stuck. Yes, that's the reason. Victory! And the thing about the Tria Namina is that there is no rule or reason to it. You can use any of these three names and they are all equally correct. And historians will use any of these names and expect you to understand who they're talking about. And remember, these names operate interchangeably. They are all correct. When I say Tiberius Sempronius Longus and Publius Cornelius Scipio, you can use any of those names and the histories all just pick one seemingly at random. So if you go off and research this on your own, and I encourage you to do that, you might see someone say that Tiberius's armies arrived at the battle at this point. And someone else might say that Sempronius did this. And another might say that Longus wanted to do that. Know that they are all talking about exactly the same guy. And there is no correct way to do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick to the most famous names. But if you leave the trail that I provide you you should understand that the nomenclature becomes an absolute clusterfuck. So, henceforth, Publius Cornelius Scipio will be Scipio, and Tiberius Sempronius Longus will be Sempronius. Scipio and Sempronius are co-consoles, but they are not the best of friends on a good day, and now there's a Carthaginian psychopath making everyone even more edgy. So when Sempronius arrives with his army from Sicily, we don't know that he ever actually combined his army with the one that was already there. We don't know that those forces ever actually integrated, or if there was two separate camps. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that they didn't meet up. We don't even know if Scipio and Sempronius ever actually had a face-to-face meeting at this point, if they ever spoke to each other. It's entirely possible, probable even that there are two Roman armies about to face off against Carthage, and the leaders of both of these armies, the two leaders of Rome, just plain refused to speak to each other. But then again, there's no evidence that they didn't either. There is mention that Hannibal managed to position himself between the two Roman armies to keep them apart, that this was a deliberate ploy from the greatest military mind in history. He positioned himself to cut off these Roman reinforcements and prevent them from meeting up and coordinating. And this is absolutely something that Hannibal would have done if he could. He's the goat for a reason. But there's also a lot of evidence that Roman leaders in general, and these two Roman leaders in particular, were absolute fuckwits. So there's also that. but we do also have evidence from the ancient historians that tell us that the two Roman armies and their leaders were able to link up and discuss strategy. But you have to remember that ancient history isn't exactly known for its rigor and science. It was a common trope of ancient historians to just straight up invent speeches that were supposed to have happened. And as an entertainer, I cannot fault this. Most of this history is being told for entertainment value. History as a science is somewhat novel. People didn't listen to Herodotus because they wanted to know about the socioeconomic implications of Babylonian grain shortages. They wanted to hear about someone getting stabbed in the face. So, of course, you invent scenes to get the plot moving. Ancient historians absolutely loved to give exposition through dialogue. And again, I'm not judging here. Whenever you need to let the audience know exactly what's going on, you have someone suddenly give a speech where they explain, in no uncertain terms, exactly what's going on. And that gives everyone listening, and they would be listening because they mostly couldn't read, everyone listening will now know the score. It's a great trick, especially in history, and I don't fault it. Yes, yes, I know that the first rule of good writing is supposed to be show, don't tell, but sometimes the best way to do things is to tell instead of show. Fellowship of the Ring, again, is one of the greatest movies of all time, but there's a reason that it kicks off with Galadriel straight up telling you 3,000 years of Middle-earth history. That would be fucking painful to show instead of telling. Tolkien, for his part wrote a second, larger book called The Silmarillion, and said, if you want to know what's happening, go read that. Sometimes, telling instead of showing is way better. There you go, free bonus writing lesson from a professional entertainer. Show, don't tell, unless you have a massive amount of information, in which case, tell, don't show. For instance, if you're telling the history of Middle Earth, or the story about how Hannibal found himself marching on Rome. So when the ancient historians are telling the story, Appian, Tastus, Polybius, Herodotus, all of those guys, when they need to let the audience know some of the trickier points of the story, they'll always have a sudden scene where one of the important characters has to outline their plan in great detail through a speech or a meeting between two characters or they have an argument or they dictate a letter or some other plot contrivance like a villain monologue. It's so that the audience can get the picture. And I'm not saying that these things didn't actually happen from time to time, but what are the odds that when friend of the pod Julius Caesar is on his way to the theatre of Pompey on the Ides of March, what are the odds that there's a guy walking along with a quill and a parchment writing down every single thing that Caesar says? Ah, tis a wonderful day today. I certainly do not expect to be brutally murdered by my best friend today. But just in case... Can you get all of this down so that people in a couple of thousand years can scan this for subtext? Which is an insight into how ancient history works, but also a way of explaining that we have ancient sources that tell us that when Sempronius rocks up with his army, he goes to meet Scipio and they have this long discussion about what has happened and what they should do next. You could potentially take that as evidence that the two leaders actually did have a meeting and they did combine their armies but that's probably not the slam dunk that it looks like. So it's more than likely that Hannibal actually did split the armies, and that this dialogue between the two consoles never actually happened. But ultimately, it's academic. I'm just doubling down on my initial point from the top of the show about questioning the sources, including me. So these two consoles meet up, or they don't, and they may or may not combine their armies, and they may or may not talk to each other. And here's where the Roman system of having two consuls start to bring them unstuck, as it will through pretty much the rest of the Roman Republic. So as I've said before, the position of consul is the leader of Rome, very much akin to a president, pretty much the same thing. Consuls, though, have a one-year term. That's it. Every year you have an election. And like Sith Lords, always two there are. The Roman political system is sort of built around the idea of not having a king. They killed their last king in about 700 BCE, and it is absolutely critical that it never happens again. So you have two consoles. That's the way to get around it. That way nobody has absolute power. One console can always act as a balance to the other, and you don't get any sudden kingships. Because the last king was a huge dick, and you can learn about him in a Patreon show if you sign up for that for a nominal amount of money each month. The two-console system prevents kings from happening, and that means that you have two sets of eyes to look at every problem and make the right decision. At least in theory. But usually what happens is that the two consoles start bickering immediately, and things grind to a halt. Which is what happens here at a little place called the River Trebia. Hannibal has just handed the Romans an absolute spanking, and Scipio is wounded, and his army retreats downriver to a place known as Trebia. Hannibal is chasing them, and the Romans manage to link up with their reinforcements at Trebia, led by the other consul, Tiberius Sempronius Longus. And Scipio the Elder and Sempronius begin to bicker with each other about how to deal with the whole Hannibal situation which may or may not have actually happened, choose your own adventure, but for the sake of continuity, let's go with the ancient historians and believe that the two actually did meet up. Sempronius wants to charge in and take Hannibal head on. Sempronius was a gung-ho kind of guy, even for a Roman, and the Romans were a gung-ho kind of people, so that's saying something. So Sempronius' strategy is just shoot them all and let the gods sort them out which was how the Romans liked to deal with most of their problems. They are an arrogant people. Did I mention that? Rome are the absolute best at everything all the time, so let's just walk over there, meet Hannibal in an open battle, and we'll each murder a thousand Carthaginians and return to Rome covered in blood and glory without even a scratch. The fact that Hannibal had just beaten a Roman army doesn't even enter into Sempronius' thinking because these guys were genetically incapable of any kind of introspection. We're Roman. We're the best. Nothing bad can possibly happen to us because we're just so awesome. So let's just go over there and win this thing and go home. That's Sempronius' plan. Scipio vetoes that mostly because it was Sempronius' plan and Scipio wants the glory instead. The guy who leads the army gets the glory, and whoever is in command on that particular day gets to lead the army. Tactics and strategy do come into it a tiny little bit, but it's mostly ego driving these guys. Most of the things that Rome will do in this period will be because it was someone's turn to be in charge and he didn't want the other guy taking the credit. Scipio says, Hey, this is my command. You've come here to reinforce me. I'm in charge. It's December. It's too cold to do anything. Let's wait out the winter, and we can spend a few months training the troops, getting ready, my butt can heal. Then we can deal with these Carthaginians when everyone is fresh. Besides, their army, it's all mercenaries and local Gallic tribesmen, They're just going to get bored and go home. So let's wait for Hannibal's army to desert him. And Scipio is not entirely wrong here. Because nobody does anything in winter because humans are mammals and we shouldn't be forced to do anything when it's cold. The upshot is that Scipio is arguing for caution. For a variety of reasons, but mostly for selfish ones. But it is the more sensible decision, even if he got there the wrong way. Scipio has underestimated Hannibal once before, and quite literally had his ass handed to him. Hannibal is obviously very, very good. Maybe we should be patient, because this guy seems to be exceptionally good at laying traps. So Scipio is the voice of reason in all of this, and history will prove him correct. But there's an important detail that you should know about here. As ever with history, we have the luxury of knowing how things turn out. These guys didn't. It looks like Scipio's position is obvious, and maybe it is, but it isn't as clear-cut as it looks to us here in the future. It could have been just as effective to charge in and hit Hannibal while he was still recovering from the last battle. That's on the table, We know how things turn out, but they didn't. It's always critical to remember that when we look at history. The people in it don't know how it ends. The other thing about Scipio being the voice of reason here who cautions Sempronius against rash action and what is going to happen making him look like Cassandra that he can see the future and he's trying to warn Sempronius about the inevitable danger only for everything to fall to shit when Sempronius ignores it, there's something you should know. The main source we have for this battle is old mate Polybius. And as I've said before, Polybius is hardly objective. But it's even worse here. Because Polybius was friends with the Scipios. And he was the tutor of Scipio's grandson. He's a very close friend of the Scipio family, he's an honorary uncle. So maybe he's not the best person to be talking to when discussing what Scipio was arguing here. And whether or not Scipio may have been the voice of reason. Polybius has skin in the game. So the two consoles bicker away because their political and military command system is fucking ridiculous. Sempronius wants to attack because all he knows is violence. Scipio wants to hold off during winter, ostensibly because he wants the time to prepare, but more because he needs that time to heal and he wants the glory of being the man who beat Hannibal. And Sempronius calls him a coward and says that the only reason he's waiting is because he got stabbed in the butt and if Sempronius was in charge, he would do the butt stabbing and it basically boils down to a schoolyard argument. Oh yeah, something else that's important. When I say that these armies were led by consuls, so Roman presidents, that might give you the wrong impression. These guys were politicians, sure, they'd spent their careers climbing the ladder of knives that was the Roman political system, but they weren't pure politicians. These guys knew their way around a battlefield. You were not eligible to run for office in the Roman Republic until you had served at least 10 years in the military. So these guys, while being arrogant fuckwits, are not completely clueless when it comes to the art of war. They've all served at least 10 years. So that's worth noting. It's not like the draft dodging Donald Trump is in charge. It's way more like Dwight Eisenhower. Former President Ike Eisenhower! Let's get busy! And no, America, Ron DeSantis does not count. Meatball Ron likes to claim that he was a Navy SEAL, but he was never a SEAL. He was a JAG, a lawyer. He's never fought in his life. His only real experience was being deployed to Guantanamo Bay to invent new methods of torture that didn't technically violate the Geneva Convention. But he's never been in combat. He's an evil piece of shit who was in the military, but he wasn't a veteran. Oh no, he's gone. Woke again. Send the emails. As if I don't do this in every show. So these Roman politicians have been in the military most of their lives. So they're making their arguments from experience. They're not weekend warriors. But that doesn't mean that they're not also idiots. Sempronius was pushing for an immediate battle because of political reasons and for his own ego. Basically, nobody fights in winter, that's the unwritten law, and it's already winter, so this is really the last chance anyone has for a big battle. Now, Rome had elections every year. You only got to be consul for one term of one year. So if we wait for spring to have this battle, then there's going to be elections back in Rome and Sempronius won't be consul anymore. Someone else will be elected and put in charge, and they'll come in and fight Hannibal, and they'll get the glory. Sempronius wants the glory of beating Hannibal all for himself. That's why he's so gung-ho. You know, the glory of being a clown. He's on the clock. Scipio was in the same situation, but he was less of an idiot and also had a butt injury, so he was happy for someone else to do it. But what it boils down to is if Sempronius is going to get a huge party in Rome in his honor for beating Hannibal, he needs to make things happen right now because his term is up in a few weeks. And as for the other side of things, as for Hannibal, he also would like a fight right now. He is super keen for it. And Hannibal wants a fight for the same reasons that Scipio does not want a battle which means that Sempronius is playing right into Hannibal's hands. Scipio was right. Hannibal did have a tenuous grasp on his troops. He's not leading a Carthaginian army. The vast majority of his forces are local Celts, and those guys are sketchy at best. Celts are known for their bloodlust, but they're very ADD. They lose interest very quickly. Hannibal knows that if he spends too long doing nothing, then most of his army is going to get bored and wander off. They'll chase something shiny. So he'd like to fight right now if he can, but he's not exactly in a position to force the issue, because of the whole crossing the Alps thing. He has a smaller army who are still recovering from doing the impossible. He can't win a straight up battle with the Romans. There needs to be some kind of shenanigans if he's going to pull this off. Fortunately, Hannibal is the best of the best when it comes to shenanigans, but the very nature of shenanigans means that he cannot make the first move. He needs to set a trap. He wants the Romans to be the first ones to fuck up, and admittedly, Sempronius is doing a really good job of that, but for the moment, nobody is doing anything. Then, something happens that lights a fire under everyone. Rome, at this point, is nowhere near as big as it's going to be when noted conqueror and friend of the pod, Julius Caesar, decides to change the borders. In and around this region, there are a whole bunch of Gallic tribes. There's a reason why Caesar's book is called Commentaries of the Gallic War. Gaul and Rome do not get along. A lot of these Gauls have allied with Hannibal because they don't like Rome, but a lot of them are not. They aren't allied with Rome either. As I said, you don't want to ally with one side too early because what happens if you back the wrong horse? So these Gauls start sending ambassadors to both the Romans and the Carthaginians hedging their bets, playing both sides to make sure that they come out on top. Which is a pretty good way to make sure that you lose because the winner is going to be pretty pissed off at you. But they didn't think about this. Hannibal finds out about this fence-sitting, and he'll have none of it. He puts the word out to all of the Gauls slash Celts. They're the same thing in this period, and forgive me if I can't remember which mood I was in when I was writing this. But Hannibal sends the word out to all of the Gauls that you're either with me or against me. But you need to choose right now. I'm going to kick the ever-loving shit out of Rome, and you're more than welcome to join me in the shit-kicking but if you ally with the Romans, then I'm going to have to consider you to be a Roman, and you guys all know what Barcus think about Romans. And then, to really drive home the point, Hannibal sends out some of his amazing cavalry on a chevouché to raid some of these tribes, and says that the beatings will continue until morale improves. Hannibal's cavalry ride out to these tribes to offer them the carrot and the stick. Well, to offer them the carrot and to have the stick ready if they don't take the carrot. And remember, Hannibal has kick-ass cavalry, so this is not to be messed with. So the message is, either join up and we will have a fun time killing Romans, or you can side with the Romans and you can have a fun time putting your town's mayor back together again. Your choice. So this cavalry raids a few of these Golic camps and they take a whole bunch of their stuff and they basically say, we can end you at any time if we want. But if you want to join Team Hannibal, then this horsey death squadron can be on your side. I look forward to your reply. But as luck would have it, on their way back, this cavalry force encounters Sempronius and his cavalry, who just happened to be in the same area, doing the same thing. I say just happened to be there because it was a complete accident. It was totally random. Carthage's cavalry raid encountered Rome's cavalry raid, and it was like the Spider-Man pointing meme. And what happens next is what is known in history as a bit of argy bargey. And I fucking love this story it is one of my favorite historical stories for just how much of a slapstick comedy it is the roman cavalry were just out on their way to a raid so they were fresh the carthaginian cavalry had just concluded a raid and they were carrying sackfuls of booty so they were not fresh so the carthaginians thought fuck this and they ran away Do not engage unless you dictate the terms. That's Hannibal's doctrine. The Romans, being Roman, chased after the Carthaginians. But the Roman cavalry wasn't quite as good as the Carthaginian cavalry, so despite being fresher, they couldn't catch the Carthaginians. And the Carthaginians make it all the way back to the war camp, where the entire army is. And these Carthaginians in the war camp see the Romans chasing their boys back to the camp, and they say, right, what's all this then? And they come out and attack the Romans. Now it's the Romans who are being chased. And I will get a content strike if I play the Scooby-Doo music here, but just imagine that I'm playing the Scooby-Doo chase music. So now it's the Roman cavalry being chased by the now much larger Carthaginian cavalry. And they chase the Romans all the way back to the Roman camp. And at the Roman camp, the Romans see their boys being chased by the Carthaginians. And they say, right, none of this then. And they come out and they start to attack. So what happened as a complete accident between two small groups of light cavalry out on raids is gearing up to be a full-scale battle between two superpowers. And everything looks set up to be a pitched battle until Hannibal himself shows up and just stops everything. He stops his army from attacking. He just whistles and everyone comes to a complete stop. Hannibal says, we're not fighting now. This goes against all of my teachings. This is not the time I chose for a battle. This is an awful place for a battle. Nothing is prepared. This is all bullshit. We fight when I say we fight, and I only say we fight when I've done my homework, so everyone take a chill pill, relax, we're going to head back to camp right now. And all of his troops immediately stop the attack. They form up and make an ordered retreat back to the Carthaginian camp. There was no battle that day and the Romans are watching this in stunned silence because they've just witnessed something biblical in scale. I need to emphasize just how fucking incredible this was. This is one of the most amazing things that has ever happened. Two armies about to engage in a pitched battle until Hannibal Barker said no, and everyone stopped and went home. This is... Completely unheard of, especially in ancient war when bloodlust was a real thing for Hannibal to have the presence of command to get his troops to just walk away. It is nothing short of astonishing. Nobody has that sort of charisma. Nobody. And yet Hannibal did. Nope, I didn't sign off on this combat. Everyone fuck off back to camp. This is huge. This is as big a deal as when Neo learns that he's the one and he stops bullets in midair. That's the level of awesome that Hannibal is displaying right here. And what it demonstrates is that Hannibal is a cool, level-headed, logical figure. So, the absolute opposite of a Roman in this period. Hannibal doesn't get caught up in the moment. He doesn't get a rush of blood to the head. He calmly assesses the situation and decides that he didn't pick the time of the battle. He didn't pick the location. He's not prepared. So we're not going to fight today. The Romans would have absolutely rushed in without a second of hesitation, but that's why they're not the best military commander of all time, and Hannibal is. Sun Tzu's Art of War, which should be called the Art of Common Sense because nothing in it is terribly insightful, but that doesn't make it bad advice. The Art of War says that if you do not dictate the terms of battle, then you should avoid battle at all costs. Hannibal throughout his entire career is an utter genius at this. Nothing ever happened without his prior written consent. If you ever found yourself in a battle with Hannibal Barker, it's because that's exactly what he wanted and you've already lost. There were no surprises for Hannibal. But this is early in his career though, back when he was still called the Quarryman, and without his reputation of being an unbeatable super commander. What's worth noting is that the Roman side of this encounter was being personally led by Sempronius. And Sempronius was an insufferable dick at the best of times, and this is not the best of times. Sit down. I, I'm sit still down. Hearing you sit song. down, boyfriend. You sit down. All he sees is that the Carthaginians retreated when they saw the Romans, so obviously they're all scared of the Romans. Does this sound familiar? Sempronius does not have a good grasp of strategy. He's only in this position because his parents were rich, which is, thankfully, something that you don't see in the modern world today. We've moved past that, obviously, which is great. But Sempronius gets it into his head that the Carthaginians are all cowards, led by a massive coward, so it's time to meet them head on and crush them once and for all. So Sempronius feels like he's won a huge victory against Carthage already, it's time to press the advantage. He has been itching for a battle since he got there, and now he's just foaming at the mouth. He looks like Alex Jones screaming about gay frogs. It's time for a good old-fashioned battle. If only Scipio weren't holding him back. And Hannibal learns about this, because unlike the Romans, he's actually very good at spying. He has spies everywhere. He has spies in the Roman camp. And he hears about how much of a blowhard this Sempronius cat is, and he could not be happier. Sempronius is precisely the kind of dickhead who will walk into a trap, and instead of admitting that it was a trap, he might instead pretend that the whole time he'd intended to say the word cafefe, you just didn't get it. Hannibal had Gallic spies in Sempronius' war camp, and they report back exactly what Sempronius is up to. And they also report that Sempronius is an A1, number one fuckhead who thinks with his dick, and maybe Hannibal can exploit that. And yes, indeed, Hannibal could exploit that. Hannibal decides that the time for battle has come, but he's going to dictate the terms. He's going to choose the where and the when of the battle. As for the where, he picks the banks of the river Trebia near a whole lot of small, rolling hills. Sun Tzu would be so very, very proud. As for the when, he makes sure Sempronius is leading the army that day. Hannibal Barker is one of the best ambushes in history, probably the best. If there is a time and place that you would least like to encounter Hannibal, that's exactly when you're going to encounter Hannibal. So that's already in his favor. But on the other end of the spectrum, the Romans are probably the worst scouting army in history. They just did not bother with anything like intelligence gathering or having a quick look around or any of that fancy nonsense. That was way beneath them. So if we get ambushed, that just means that we don't need to go looking for the fight that we will inevitably win because we're Roman. And they're about to find out that being Roman is no match for actually knowing what the fuck you're doing. And this is going to go down in history as the Battle of Trebia. Apparently, Hannibal himself scouted the location for this battle. He got on his horse... And he went around and he had a look around the area and decided that this was the best place to kick Roman ass. Trebia. And Hannibal did this a lot. One of the reasons that Hannibal was such a good scouting commander was because he did the scouting himself. He doesn't delegate shit like this. If you want to know exactly what the lay of the land is, you go out and have a look yourself. There are actually stories of how Hannibal would go out scouting while in disguise. He'd put on a wig and dye his hair and dress as a Roman and go scouting in disguise. Some stories, which are probably apocryphal, but they're very cool, some people say that Hannibal himself would actually ride into Roman camps while in disguise and have a look around, just because he could. The reason that Hannibal chose Trebia for this battle was because this region of the River Trebia had a bunch of small hills around it. Not mountains, not big hills, just the kind of average, small, rolling hills you'd get in any suburb in any city. Today, we might say that a place like that would be a little bit hilly. Like, you wouldn't notice it unless someone said something like, oh, it's a bit hilly here, isn't it? And you go, yeah, I guess it is. That's the level of hill we're talking about. But Hannibal chooses a hilly place for a reason. Hills are great places for ambushes. Things like forests are suspicious. You expect an army to be hiding in a forest. Romans did not go anywhere near forests because they had a track record of being ambushed in forests. Forests were a place an enemy army might hide, so the Romans steered clear of them because they're smart like that. They probably could have been better at scouting, but that's not how Rome did things. So there's just no way that you'd go near a forest, or a wood, or a copse. How many words are there for a bunch of trees? So you don't go near them. There could be all manner of enemies hiding in trees waiting to ambush you. So you stay away from trees. But small hills? What's the worst thing that can happen with small hills? Romans weren't suspicious of small hills. Line of sight is a funny thing. A hill might only be a few meters high, barely worth mentioning, but unless you're standing on top of it, you can't see anything beyond that hill. You can try this yourself. Next time you come across a hill in your daily stroll or drive or whatever, just think about how much you can see past that hill. Nothing until you're on the top of it. Think of all the things you could potentially hide behind some hills. One could hide all manner of things behind hills if one were so inclined, a small hill, less than 5 metres high, could hide a lot of soldiers. If you knew what you were doing. And Hannibal Barker, well, that guy knew what he was doing. There are all these small hills in the region of the Trebia, which are great for blocking line of sight, but there's also a marsh at the bottom of one of these hills. And the marsh was mostly drained, but not all the way. And marshes are unpleasant places at the best of times. But this is December in the Northern Hemisphere. It's in the middle of winter. It is not the best of times. You do not want to be wading through a marsh in Italy in the middle of winter. It's not a deep marsh. The waters may be up to your ankles. But a marsh is a marsh. So the Romans ruled out this marsh as a possible place for an ambush because nobody is crazy enough to put soldiers in a freezing marsh in the middle of winter, right? Just like how nobody is crazy enough to take an army through the Alps in the middle of winter. So the Romans just ignore it. The night before the battle, Hannibal gets his brother Mago who is the commander of the horse. This means that he's in charge of the cavalry, and since Carthage were a cavalry-heavy army, this means that Mago is Hannibal's two IC. Mago is, interestingly, one of the few people in this story not called Hannibal or Scipio. There are other Magos in the story, but I have left them out just to avoid confusions. Don't say I never do anything for you. So Hannibal says to his brother Mago, Get me your 100 best foot soldiers and your 100 best horsemen and bring them to me. I've got a super top secret mission for them. This is going to be cool. And Mago does just that. Gets all these guys together. So now Hannibal has these 200 men assembled in front of him. And Hannibal says to these guys, Hey, I've got a super top secret mission for all of you. It's going to be super cool. Trust me, what I need from all of you is to go back to your units and pick out your 10 best men, because I'm forming a special A-team super crack unit for this super top secret special mission that's going to be super cool. And each of these men is pretty chuffed. They've been handpicked by Mago Barker, the second in command, and now they're the crack force of the big dog himself, Hannibal. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool, right? The original 200 men, they're all thinking, hey, I'm one of the top 200 guys in this entire army. I'm in the top 0.5% of everyone on this side of the Punic War. That's pretty cool. And I get to go back and pick my own A-team? I'm not being assigned soldiers. I get to pick my own team? That is pretty damn cool. I'm in charge of this secret mission. This is great. And they go back and they pick their 10 best dudes. If you're keeping up with the numbers, this is now 2,000 men. And these dudes are all similarly chuffed because they were hand-picked. They're in the top 5%. They are the best of the best. And Hannibal wanted them personally. Not the other 40,000 guys in the army. Them. And this is really important. The Carthaginian army wasn't a bunch of fanatical patriots like the Romans. They were mercenaries. Hannibal couldn't just conscript people. Well, he could, but that wasn't a good way to go about it. So Hannibal used this form of man management because what he wanted them to do was bloody awful. This was going to be an incredibly unpleasant experience and nobody would willingly volunteer to do this, so he has to incentivize. As Napoleon said, a soldier will fight long and hard for a bit of shiny ribbon, and Hannibal knew that principle. And remember that next time your boss offers up a pizza party. So Hannibal knows that he needs some serious sugar coating on this special mission. So he makes sure that these guys think that they're the most awesome dudes in his army. And he makes sure to go out amongst them and talk to each of them personally and shake their hand and thank them for volunteering. And this is a big deal for the soldiers here because we get to meet THE Hannibal Barker? THE Hannibal Barker? Hannibal is 200 BCE Tay-Tay. If he shakes your hand, you never wash that hand again. So it's pretty cool. So here's the plan. Hannibal wanted these 2,000 guys to go and stand in a freezing marsh all night. They were going to go and stand in ankle-deep, freezing cold water at the bottom of a hill. This cold, dank marsh... That the Romans ignored, because who the fuck is crazy enough to spend an entire night squatting in a frozen bog, nobody expects to be ambushed by 2,000 people who just spent the better part of 12 hours marinating in a sub-zero pond. And they are going to be the crack force that guts the Roman army. What are you doing in my swamp? Then, Hannibal goes to the rest of his troops, and he gives them his orders for the battle proper. He's just assembled the A-team and sent them off on swamp duty, but now he needs to get the rest of the elements together. And he tells them that tomorrow is the big day, and there's going to be a huge battle, so what he wants them to do is to get comfortable. Have a fun night, maybe have a little bit of a drink, but not too much, and then get plenty of sleep because we need to get up bright and early tomorrow morning to murder some Romans. Everyone is going to get double rations of food, so nobody is hungry. And the fires are going to be built up as big as possible, so that everyone is super toasty warm. It's the middle of winter, remember? And then, everyone is going to be in bed by 9 o'clock, because we've got that big day of Romans laying ahead of us. It's like Carthaginian Christmas Eve. And they did. Everyone had a nice, warm meal, everyone had a warm place to sleep, and everyone was as fresh as a daisy the next morning. Except for those 2,000 guys in the swamp, but they knew what they were signing up for. Then, Hannibal assembled a second strike force, made up of some of his elite cavalry, those Numidian horse skirmishers. Not many, just a couple of hundred of them, but that's not really going to matter, because it's not the size, it's what you do with it. A couple of hours before dawn, Hannibal sends this strike force out to attack the Roman camp. Now, this is at least seven years before electricity is invented, so everything is dark as all shit. In the darkness, an army of a couple of hundred guys on horses can look like an army of 50,000 men. There's no way to be sure. It's dark. There's chaos. You can't see. Who knows how many people are attacking you? And that's what Hannibal was counting on. This force... Of a couple of hundred horsemen rides up to the Roman camp, hollering and screaming, shooting bows, throwing javelins, causing general mayhem. It does not do any damage because one of the things with the Romans is that they built a fort every night, so they were in no real danger from this attack, but that was never the point. This force of attacking horsemen is seen by the Roman sentries and they immediately sound the alarm. Trumpets sounding, bells ringing, everyone get up, the Carthaginians are attacking. And all of the Romans spring out of their sleeping bags, they throw on whatever armor they can find, they grab the closest weapon, and they all assemble into formation to meet this surprise Carthaginian assault. And they do this very well, that needs to be said. The Romans are very well drilled and very well disciplined, that's part of their strength. They are designed from the ground up that you don't need to get into your actual unit. You just get into any formation and everyone sort of knows what they're doing. It doesn't matter where you are, just as long as you're in there somewhere. So this is not a panicked army. Everyone is loaded for bear, ready for war. But that's the thing. The Roman army is now in formation, ready to repel this Carthaginian assault, ready to defend against an attack. They are all wide awake. At which point Hannibal's cavalry immediately wheels around and rides away going "Ha ha! made you get in formation. Sempronius, noted dickwad, he is not having any of this. Oh no, this is just another sign of just how cowardly these Carthaginians are. Sure, they act tough, but as soon as they see an actual Roman army, they run away. I mean, this was probably the big Carthaginian attack, and they had to surprise us before dawn to have any sort of chance. But when they saw how quickly we can get out of bed and ready for combat, they got scared and they ran away. The cowards. Well, says Sempronius, you don't get to decide that you want to have a battle before dawn and then change your mind halfway through and not have a battle. So today, Sempronius is going to force the issue. Sempronius, dickwad, he decides that it's time to teach these Carthaginians what it means to fuck with the mighty Roman Republic. And he's going to get that battle that he's been hankering for. He's going to force the issue. He is going to chase the Carthaginian army and destroy it utterly and claim all of the glory that is his due. So he gathers up his forces and he chases after Hannibal's cavalry. Come on lads, ride to wrath, ride to ruin and the red sun rising! Now for wrath! And the chase leads them right to the banks of the River Trebia. And by all accounts, at no point did Sempronius ever consider that this might be a trap. It has all the makings of being a trap. There might as well have been a big flashing neon sign saying, trap here, but Sempronius was not a smart man. He never once considered that a few hundred light cavalry wasn't actually the biggest force that Hannibal could muster. Now, as I've said a couple of times, these Numidian cavalry are pretty much the same as what the Mongols would use about 1,500 years later. When you hit max level, you stop leveling, and they hit max level early. And you'll recall that I did a lengthy series on the Mongols outlining their tactics, and one of the main takeaways was that the Mongols were huge fans of a tactic known as the feigned flight, or false retreat. So if you found yourself chasing after a Mongol army who were running away from you, you were already dead. Well, Numidians being pretty much the same thing, the same thing applies here. But this was a long time before the Mongols, so Sempronius doesn't know what we know. He has no idea of how fucked he is. But he's about to. By all the historical accounts, it had rained quite heavily through that night and so the river Trebia was swollen at this point. The water was higher than usual. The Trebia itself was never a big river, it wasn't particularly wide or deep, but it is a river, and it's swollen now. The historians tell us that it was at chest height. You can cross it without boats or bridges or anything, but you will need to wade through chest-high water to do it. And it's December, remember, so that water is as cold as a witch's tit. So the Numidians... Being unarmored and on horses, they cross relatively quickly. But the Romans had a much harder time of it, wading through this river while giving chase. So having a large part of your army wading through chest-high water in a raging river, that would be a terribly inconvenient time to encounter Hannibal Barker, wouldn't it? Well, you're not going to believe what happens next. Yep. Sempronius is about to get Hannibald. Remember our boys the Balearic Slingers from the last show? Here's where they're going to get their first big debut in combat. They start raining rocks down on the Roman army in the river. If there's one thing that's worse than trying to slog your way through a raging river, it's trying to slog your way through a raging river while in full battle armor and the water is freezing cold. And if there's anything worse than that, which is very hard to do, it's trying to do all of that while people are very accurately shooting rocks at all the things that you would rather not have rocks shot at, like your elbows and your wrists and your head. This whole situation for the Romans is about a dozen different flavors of do not want, which makes the Romans super keen to cross this river as quickly as possible. And we have to take a moment to run through the full list of banal horrors that the Romans have already gone through on this day, before the sun has even come up, hours before the battle actually begins. They're tired. They haven't slept properly because they were woken up by a pre-dawn horse raid. They were forced to go straight from bed, into their armor, and chase down this horse raid. Since they're in hot pursuit, none of them are dressed properly and it's frigging cold. The historians tell us that there was sleet all day, it's very unpleasant, and they've gone straight from bed to battle. None of them have eaten breakfast, none of them even had time to take a shit that morning. Now, they have to ford a river, swollen with the aforementioned sleet, in the middle of winter, while people are very accurately hurling rocks at their head. And just imagine it. Imagine wading through this chest-high water. You have to hold your shield and your weapon above your head because you don't want them getting wet and because people are trying to kill you. I challenge anyone to hold anything above their head. Absolutely anything starts to get really heavy after about 30 seconds, let alone a scutum. And they have to ford an entire river while doing this. It is literally freezing cold. The water is turgid and you have to take it slowly because you can't afford to slip. You're wearing full metal armor. If you slip, you drown. And if you're a Roman, you just want to be out of this water as quickly as possible because it just sucks. You are having an awful, awful time. And this is yet another reason why Hannibal is on my top 10 list of everything ever. Forcing an enemy army to suffer through the Wim Hof method before a battle, that is just chef's kiss. And here's where the true genius of Hannibal kicks in. This is why he's the best. All of this on its own would be worthy of putting in a show, but here's where Hannibal makes it truly sublime. Hannibal didn't deploy his army directly on the banks of the Trebia. He left them a few hundred meters back. Because if he'd deployed his army directly on the banks of the river, sure, he might be able to shoot a few of those Romans as they approached, gunning them down like in Saving Private Ryan, but maybe the Romans look at all of that and think that it's not worth the trouble. But Hannibal didn't do that. He left just enough room so that an enterprising Roman commander with a reputation for brash, irrational glory hunting might be tempted to push his troops double quick to take that beachhead before the Carthaginians could overrun the position. A commander who, in the heat of the moment, might not question why the Carthaginians were not already deployed there. Sempronius. I'm talking about Sempronius. This is bait. So the Romans push hard to take the far bank of the river Trebia, the opposite side of the river, and Hannibal lets them have it. And here's why. This is the genius part. It's because ancient battles didn't happen straight away. It's not saving Private Ryan, where you're in the thick of the action as soon as you hit the beach, charging up to the shingle while machine guns fire down at you. Ancient warfare takes forever. Tens of thousands of people have to slowly get into formation, which takes hours. The line is miles and miles long. And then everyone has to wait for orders, and for those orders to be shouted all the way down that line to the thousands and thousands of troops. And then, when everyone's ready, you all slowly walk towards the other army. Everything takes a very long time. So the Romans have now assembled on the other side of the river, and they're forming up for battle which is normal. But as they cross the river and as everyone deploys, they have to wait for everyone else to get across the river and deploy, because you're not going to be attacking in ones and twos. The whole point of an army is that you attack as an army. So they have to wait for everyone else to cross this river. But they're all waiting after having waded through a freezing river in the middle of a snowstorm, which means that they're all wet. They're cold, they're not dressed properly, they're hungry, they're tired, the wind is blowing freezing rain absolutely everywhere, tens of thousands of Roman legionaries are standing around quite literally freezing to death for hours. Hannibal's army, on the other hand, they are as fresh as an army can possibly be. They've spent the entire night in front of roaring campfires, which Hannibal personally ordered to be larger than normal to make them extra cozy warm. Everyone has had double rations for breakfast. Everyone's had a good night's sleep. Everyone that morning had time to take a shit, which is very important. Everyone that morning had time to put on their ski suits underneath their armor. They are toasty warm. They're having a ball. (laughs) And Hannibal leaves precisely enough time for everyone on the other side to let all of that sink in. To realize just how utterly fucked they were. The first oh shit moment occurred when the Roman troops saw that the Numidian cavalry, the very good Numidian cavalry, the cavalry that they'd just been chasing, yeah, that cavalry has just turned around. They're not running away, they're attacking. They just velocirapted you, Clever girl. and the Carthaginians just straight up had a lot more cavalry than the Romans. There are a few cases in history where the side without cavalry superiority wins a battle, but they are few and far between, and this is not one of those occasions. The Romans had about 2,000 cavalry on each flank. Hannibal had 5,000 on each flank, and his cavalry is just plain better. Those numbers do not add up. It's about to get very messy. And at this point, quite a few of the ancient accounts take the time to mention that the Romans were too cold to properly hold their weapons. I can believe this. I used to work out at the airport on the ramp loading aircraft the wind could get mighty cold blowing in off Botany Bay. And one morning that I remember in particular, it was zero degrees, which is very cold for Sydney. I don't care, Canadians, we consider that cold, all right? Wind chill took that down another 10 degrees, just like it did in this battle. And on this one morning out at the airport, I was so cold that my hands would not work properly. I literally could not close my fingers to operate a switch That would open the aircraft doors. This was just a switch that you held, like a light switch, and my hands were so cold that I could not physically do it. And that morning, before work, I had had a hot shower, breakfast, and a coffee, and I still could not work a switch, I can't imagine what it would be like to be even colder in the rain after having crossed a river and having to hold on to a shield and a sword while also having to fend off someone who's trying with all their heart to murder me horribly. It sounds awful. So here's how the Romans form up. I forgot to mention in the last show, and it's super important, and it's important in the next show too, so let's lay the groundwork for how Roman armies actually formed. And it's important, because it's dumb, and the Romans are going to be punished for how they actually set up for battle. The Roman army was broken down into three main types of... dudes. Four, if you count the Velites, but let's just leave them out because we've already covered skirmishes a lot. So, the Roman army has three different flavors of infantry, like a Neapolitan ice cream, and they deployed in specific ways. The way that a Roman army would form up for battle was that the front line was known as the Hastati. Hastatus means spear, so Hastati are spearmen, standard ancient infantry. They're armed with shields, swords, and the pilum. That's just standard Roman infantry at the time, and they're called Hastati. But here's the thing. The Hastati were not the best troops in the army. They were, more often than not, the worst These were the youngest troops, usually teenagers, and they're in the Hastati because they're young. They haven't achieved anything yet, so they haven't been promoted to the higher ranks. These are your basic PFIs, poor fucking infantry. They deploy in the front lines. They are the first to close with the enemy. They charge in, they throw their Pele, they do some damage, and then they get the party started. They do the initial fighting, the first contact with the enemy. They absorb that initial shock. And then an order would go out, and the Hastati would withdraw, and the second wave of Roman units would then move in to replace them. The second wave were called the Principes. These guys are veterans. They're more experienced. They've seen combat a few times. They've all killed someone. They know what's up. They're equipped pretty much the same as the Hastati, but they usually have better stuff. And they have the courage and discipline that comes with having survived a few battles. They're better under fire. And they do the significant work of actually fighting a battle. So you would pepper the enemy with the Hastati, absorb that initial enemy charge, and then you would withdraw them and send in the shock troops, the principes. Principe means leader, but in this case it's more like sergeant. Under optimal conditions, these two lines, the Hastati and the Principes, would alternate through a battle. So when one group starts to get tired, the other ones would swap in. Under optimal conditions. Hannibal is not going to allow optimal conditions. But that's just two, and I said there were three flavors of Roman infantry. The third line was known as the Triarii, which means, if you can believe it, the third line. The Triarii are the elite troops of Rome, the veterans, the best of the best. These guys have been serving for 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, and they've survived that whole time. They are very good. They make up the final line of a Roman army, and they almost never get used, at least not in any significant way. Triarii are not there for fighting. In fact, the triarii was so rarely used that a common saying in Rome was that things were so bad that it's come to the triarii. Like we say that something is a Hail Mary play or bottom of the barrel, they would say, send in the triarii. That is, if your triarii are actually fighting, you done fucked up bad and the army is losing. The reason that you would have the most experienced troops in the back was, officially, so that they could be deployed as reserves if needed. And then the area that needed reserves would get a fresh injection of the pride of the Roman Republic, kicking ass and taking names. So suddenly what was the weakest point of your line is now the strongest. That's how the Roman armies are so good. That's the official reason. But unofficially, and this was actually their job, having the most loyal, most fanatical, most experienced troops at the back makes running away from a battle very difficult. So if you're a Roman soldier in the thick of battle, you're in the Hastati, you're a young guy, and you are not super keen on the whole violent slaughter thing that ancient warfare was, and you feel like running away, like you maybe you'd be better off just making a break for it and running in whatever direction feels best, then before you can get away from the actual battle you're going to have to try and get past the best troops in the Roman army. And they're going to have some very sharp questions about why you don't want to be fighting for Rome anymore. That's why they're there. So that's the Roman composition. Hastati, principes, and Triarii in ascending level of awesomeness. And you might begin to see the problem. And if you can, congratulations, you are a better military commander than most of the Romans in this period. Having your youngest soldiers in the front line and the most experienced ones at the back is problematic, as we're about to see. So the Hastati, these young boys, a lot of them are in their first ever battle. And they've not slept properly, they've not eaten breakfast, they're not dressed properly properly. It's snowing, they just had to cross a freezing river, they've been standing around getting even colder for hours and hours, and suddenly, the cavalry force that they thought they'd been chasing, the cavalry that had a reputation for being the best cavalry in the world, that cavalry has just turned around and commenced an attack run. Not only that, trailing behind the cavalry are Hannibal's skirmishers, the Balearics, the best in the world but he also has Spanish troops and Gallic troops, and these are people that the Romans are very afraid of, and this screaming horde is closing in just behind the cavalry. And remember, the Romans thought that they were the ones who were on the offensive here. If you're a Hestatus at the Battle of Trebia, everything is going about as wrong as it can possibly go for you. And as the Numidian cavalry bear down on them, shooting arrows as they ride, the front ranks of the Romans break. They can't take it anymore. Sense and reason go out the window, they collectively shit their pants and run. They shatter. Their morale is utterly broken. They are useless as a fighting force now, so you either pull them back now or they all die. Sempronius, in the only sensible decision of his entire career, pulls back his Hastati. He orders them out of the fight. Better to have the Hastati retreat now than have them wiped out in the first few minutes of the battle. And this wasn't a huge morale breaker for the army overall. The Hastati morale is shattered, of course, but that's not the worst thing that can happen and it hasn't spread to the rest of the Romans. The rest of the Romans did not panic. Often in history, you'll see an army get routed when the first group of people break because panic is contagious and then the whole army just crumbles, but not here. The Hastati were always meant to be withdrawn at some point. They're not made for extended frontline fighting, so this is kind of normal. Yes, ideally, you would want them out there for a bit longer than 30 seconds, but what are you going to do? So the Hastati and the Vuelites, the skirmishers, they've been pulled back. Sit this one out, lads. It's above your pay grade. And Sempronius sends in his principes, his heavy troops. It's time to do this the old-fashioned way. Tiberius Sempronius Longus has his heavy troops in formation, and they're marching, uphill it needs to be said, to meet the Carthaginian army head on. And always remember that Sempronius firmly believes that he is invulnerable. This battle was never in doubt for him, so keep that in mind. Meanwhile, Hannibal has done pretty much exactly the same thing. With the Roman front lines shattered, he doesn't need his own skirmishes anymore, so he withdraws them. Although he does keep them around to just cause some general mischief and mayhem. They hadn't been routed like the Romans, so they're still available if he needs them. But now Hannibal is heading in with his own team of big dogs. And at this stage, he still had about a dozen elephants... And these elephants are going to do what elephants do. They cause fucking carnage. Polybius barely talks about the elephant attack, which is how you know that it was very effective. Polybius, being the simp that he is, doesn't like talking about anything that makes Rome look bad, and the elephants really make Rome look bad. Livy's account is far more graphic, and he has the elephants wreaking an unholy vengeance among the Roman troops. The truth is probably somewhere in between. And enjoy these elephants while you can, because they're all going to die after this battle. This is the last time that Hannibal uses elephants in the entire story. They don't get killed in the battle, it just turns out that elephants can't survive a European winter. So, science! So on the edges, Hannibal's cavalry is doing an absolute number on Rome's cavalry because they're just straight up better. Slightly further in, the elephants are doing their thing on the flanks because they're elephants and they are straight up murderous. They are rampaging through the Roman formations in an unholy orgy of murder. But the main battle is a bit of a stalemate. Sempronius has his best foot soldiers in combat with Hannibal's best foot soldiers and they're kind of equal. This is a lot like one of those Dragon Ball Z fights that goes for 82 episodes because that's how you get the most money out of syndication. It's over 9,000! There's a whole lot of fighting going on, but not a whole lot of dying, so the battle is taking all day. And this is by no means unusual for Ancient Warfare. Not a lot of people died in the actual fighting in Ancient Warfare, relatively. The real damage was done when one side tried to run away. And right now, both teams are standing up to each other in a right proper arm wrestle. Hannibal has the overall advantage because his cavalry and elephants are doing their thing, but everything else is still up in the air. It is reasonably close. And that's when our boy Mago shows up. Remember Mago, Hannibal's brother? Remember how he had his hand-picked A team and each of those guys had their own hand-picked B team? Well, they've been spending all night sitting in a frozen bog, and they are seriously pissed off, as you would be, and they are very keen to let off some of that aggression. And as it happened, because Hannibal is so good at what he does, this group of 2,000 men and cavalry who are very pissed off about spending a night in a bog are positioned directly behind the Roman ranks. The Romans never even knew that they were there. Sempronius had arrayed his army in such a way that he thought there was no way that he would be ambushed by an elite commando group of swamp monsters. Which is not an unreasonable assumption, but as the Romans are going to learn over the next few years, and they should have already, these Carthaginians and their allies are crazy motherfuckers who do crazy motherfucker things. 2,000 Carthaginian shock troops The best of the best come charging out of the swamp like a tyrannosaurus and they head right up the Roman Jaxi. The Roman Willites, who had run away at the start of the battle to get away from that first light cavalry attack and were now sheltering at the rear of the Roman column, they get ambushed by an entirely different cavalry force made up of the best cavalry that Hannibal has, commanded personally by Mago Barker the second best general in Carthage. So these Walites, who thought they were safe, they get annihilated. They are down before they hear the shot. They are slaughtered so quickly and so utterly that the rest of the Romans don't even see them disappear. Then this commando force hits the triarii from behind, the top units that Rome had. Now... Most accounts here agree that the Triarii actually held off this attack reasonably well. They held their own. Which you kind of expect. It was the crack squad of Carthage going up against the best that Rome could muster. They're going to be pretty evenly matched. But the problem with having the Triarii fighting for their lives at the back of the line is that they can no longer do their jobs. They can't be deployed as reserve troops to bolster the lines to reinforce weak spots, and there are plenty of weak spots that need bolstering. And they could no longer act as a blocking force to prevent the rest of the Romans from breaking and running, which you can probably guess is about to happen. At this point, a very large portion of the Roman soldiers have a look around and they see enemies in every direction. They look for their weaker troops and see only a field of corpses. They call for help from their elite veterans and see that they are engaged in mortal combat from the rear. They are surrounded. They realize that they've walked into a perfectly set trap and they are being picked apart with clinical efficiency. And that is enough for the mighty Romans. They break. The battle is over. The Romans lost. Now, the only thing they can hope to do is run away as fast as they can, and each person hopes that they are faster than at least one other person in the Roman army. And now, the slaughter begins. Sempronius takes a moment and really assesses just how fucked he is, which is a lot. And for once in his life, his ego takes a huge hit. So he decides to cut bait. He abandons all previous battle plans and organizes a force of his 10,000 best men to form up into a very closely packed Testudo formation with him at the center, and they make a fighting retreat. And they actually manage to do this. This force of 10,000 men make it back to relative safety, fighting the whole way, but not really losing anyone. These guys make it out, including Sempronius, which was his plan the whole time. But you have to remember, the Roman army was about thirty to 40,000 men. So while these 10,000 are making it safely away from the battle, everyone else is proper fucked. The Gauls who were allied to Rome at the time, they still had a couple of Gallic tribes loyal to them. These guys noped the fuck out immediately and ran at the first sign of trouble. They are gone. The Roman cavalry do the same thing. They call it a tactical retreat, but you can make of that what you will. They are galloping away at speed. Sempronius and his force make it to the top of one of these hills, and all Sempronius can see is his army being utterly annihilated by Hannibal. They are dying everywhere. The Romans retreat en masse. They're not completely routed. A lot of the army does manage to retreat In some kind of order, but it is still a large scale retreat. And this is pretty weird for the Romans, they are not used to losing at all, let alone getting absolutely rinsed. At the end of the day, 20,000 Romans are dead. About another 10,000 are captured, and they wish that they're dead. The rest of the Romans are getting the fuck out of Dodge as quickly as possible, and now Hannibal owns the top half of Italy. This is really bad for Rome. Sempronius, being both the consul and the commander of the army on that day, he needs to report this back to Rome. And the news is really as bad as it can possibly be. And what Sempronius sends back to Rome is absolutely classic. This is one of the greatest linguistic contortions of all time. No lawyer in history has ever bent the truth more than Sempronius does after the Battle of Trebia. Sempronius' report back to the capital stated that he had engaged the Carthaginian army, and that there was a battle, but that bad weather had affected the battle, and, as a result, he was unable to secure victory which is all absolutely true. None of that is a lie. It is all technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. But he did leave out the part where Hannibal utterly crushed him and now 28,000 Roman legionaries were dead or missing and there was now nothing standing between the capital and a guy whose life goal was to burn that capital to the ground. Which is a bit of an oversight, and retrospectively, Sempronius probably should have included that in his report. Not long after the report makes it back to Rome, it is followed by the screaming, terrified legionaries who were running away from the battle, and they report what actually happened, and Sempronius' career is, as you could probably guess, over. Hannibal's genius was on full display at the Battle of Trebia. Not only in the big things that historical battles are known for, like troop movements or having his enemies walk into an ambush, that's the stuff that makes the history books, but you have to really appreciate the minutia that Hannibal does so well. The death by a thousand cuts that made sure the Romans had lost the battle before they even took the field. Hannibal had spies in the Roman camp, he knew that Sempronius was the kind of dickhead that would take that bait. He waited for Sempronius to be in charge. He waited until the conditions were perfect. He made his troops as comfortable as possible before the battle. He forced an engagement by attacking before dawn. He made sure that the Romans were not prepared, that they hadn't slept properly, that they were hungry, they were cold. He made them chase his army at pace so they've already exerted themselves. He had his light cavalry lead the Roman cavalry on a wild goose chase for hours so that when the battle actually came, the Roman horses were blown and the Roman cavalry was utterly useless and were ultimately slaughtered. Hannibal positioned his infantry on the battlefield in such a way that it was too tempting for the Romans not to take the bait, and then they crossed the river, wading through chest-high water in winter. Then, he held off attacking that army, giving up the immediate advantage of attacking this force who were in the middle of a river crossing, and he did that to make them stand there for hours, soaking wet while it snowed all around them. They were tired, cold, hungry. Ironically, everything that Scipio said the Carthaginians would be when they first came out of the Alps. The Romans were broken before the battle even started. Hannibal soundly won the Battle of Trebia before the first spear was ever thrown. Sempronius just didn't realize it until everyone was dead. The Romans managed to limp back to a couple of fortified towns. Sempronius takes his now considerably smaller army and camps at one town for the winter, and Scipio, with the realization that both he and the other consul had been utterly outclassed in back-to-back battles, he retreats to a second city, the Romans not wanting to burden one town with 50,000 extra mouths to feed over winter, which is about the only sensible thing the Romans do in this entire war. So the winter has now set in proper, and everyone takes a break from the war. Hannibal manages to secure a Roman city and all of its precious food stores, which is important because his army needs to eat, but it's also denying that food to the enemy, so it's a double victory. And this is a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure I'll let you pick because nobody can agree. Some sources say that this town went over to Hannibal's side willingly and threw open the gates and welcomed the Carthaginians. Other sources say that Hannibal bribed the mayor of this town. And other people state that when the best commander in the history of mankind kicks the ever-loving shit out of an army that you thought was invincible, and then this guy rocks up on your doorstep, you do what he says. Any of those options are equally valid. Pick one. The upshot is that Hannibal and his army are hunkering down in Rome for the winter, commencing for a springtime murder fest that will be unstoppable. Meanwhile, word of Hannibal's awesomeness has gotten around, and his plan is paying off. People who were begrudging allies of Rome were now flocking to his banner. His army is swelling, and Hannibal needs this. For complex political reasons that I probably won't have time to get into, Hannibal is not going to get a lot of support from Carthage at any point in his career, so he's making do with what he has. But if you remember his father, Hamilcar, That's what Barkers do best. They do great things with limited resources. So people want to join Hannibal. And the people who joined up willingly, they were very, very welcome. Come sit at my hearth, brothers, and together we shall end Rome with fire and steel. But there were quite a few people, particularly some Gallic tribes, that hadn't immediately thrown in with Hannibal. If you'll recall, there were quite a few fence-sitters. That's why there was a battle at Trebia in the first place. The Gauls were trying to play both sides. And here's where that can come unstuck. Hannibal demands loyalty. He's a great commander if you're part of his army, but you have to want it. If you were late to the party, trying to see which way the wind was blowing before you signed up, Hannibal is going to make you earn it. Essentially, he jokers these people. He gathers up the warriors of the tribes who were hedging their bets and he asks if they want to join Team Hannibal. And they say yes, considering how he just kicked the shit out of the Romans twice and everyone is terrified of him. So Hannibal says, if you're keen to join up, prove it. We're having tryouts. And he pairs off every Gallic warrior who was initially hesitant to join up but now wants to be part of Team Hannibal. He pairs them up and he throws down two swords one of you gets to join the march on Rome. How much do you want it? Now, this is brutal, sure, but not as brutal as you might think. These guys were Gauls, Celts, same difference. They're a warrior people. They are what is eventually going to turn into Vikings. So a duel to the death to see which of them gets to march to glory isn't really that out of the ordinary for them. There's a strong chance that they were probably going to do that anyway because it was Tuesday. And apparently, there were a bunch more Celts that would join up later, and they heard about the death duels, and they were super disappointed that they didn't get a chance to fight in the Thunderdome themselves because that's the Celtic version of Christmas. It's like a holiday to them. They were keen for this. The past was a different time, it was ride or die. And now, a lot of people are deciding to ride with Hannibal. And the Romans are starting to become more than a tad concerned about this invincible, hostile army that is well past their doorstep. In fact, Hannibal has kicked down the doors, jimmied open the liquor cabinet, and is enjoying a brandy by the fire. This has the Romans concerned. Not nearly as concerned as they should have been, considering who Hannibal is, but their usual implacable arrogance has taken two massive hits in the space of a month, and they have never experienced that before. And that is nothing compared to what's about to come next. Because in the next show, Hannibal is going to pull off the only example in history of one entire army being ambushed by another entire army. And then we'll cap it off with what is often described as the most perfect military command in history. A battle where Hannibal will so completely outclass the Romans that it is going to set the record for most people killed in a single battle until the First World War a battle where not a single person in the entire Roman Republic at the time did not know someone who died that day. That's how many Romans Hannibal is going to kill in one day. All that plus what is officially my favorite story in all of history, all that and more in the fourth and final Hannibal Lecture. Ah, as ever, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thanks for making it as far as you did. Uh, This one turned out to be a long one. If I've got that Kardashian vocal fry, oh my god, it's because uh, my throat is quite sore. And due to technical issues, this is not the first time I've recorded this show. So that was fun. Anyway, thanks to everyone who leaves comments. It's fantastic knowing that there are so many people out there who are a similar kind of crazy to me. That makes everything worthwhile. I love it. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share it with a friend. If you didn't enjoy the show, then I appreciate you hate listening all the way to the end. Please share it with an enemy. If you would like to do something of minimal effort to help me keep this going, then please do one of the things that the Machine Overlords approve of. Liking the show is great, commenting is even better, and subscribing is worth at least 12 likes. The metrics get weird and nobody really knows how they work, but all of it is appreciated. As I said at the top of the show, on the 27th and 29th of this month, September 2023, Year of Our Lord, I will be doing the Sydney Fringe Festival. The show is called Tag Team, and it's me and my boy Jacques Barrett, and we tag team some live comedy. JB has been my best bud and comedy partner for over 15 years now, so we vibe super well, and this show is always a blast. If you're in Sydney or you know someone who will be, send them our way. You're going to have a great night. But we are selling out reasonably quickly, so let FOMO rule you and buy some tickets. You can find deets for everything at my Linktree, which is what the cool kids insist that I need instead of a website. So linktree.com slash history go time, and that will point you wherever you need to go. It's like the magic compass in Pirates of the Caribbean. It contains all the answers to all of life's important questions, such as how to give me money. If you want to join the Patreon, you get an extra show every month, and they're always super fun. For instance, last month, Patreon's got the seedy and possibly true story of the dark secret behind Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer, which is as much as I'm going to tease here. The first rule of comedy is no money, no funny. A lot of people think that the first rule of comedy is to be funny, but no, we have our priorities straight. Alright, I think that's everything. Linktree.com slash historygo time for everything that I might have missed. Patrons, you'll get your extra goodies in your hand by the end of the month. Everyone else will have to wait a few weeks before we finish the story of Hannibal the Manable. Hasta lasagna. Don't get any on ya. (laughs) I just realized that the sting that I use at the close of every show, which was just a random sound effect I picked up off a free sound effects site, I just realized it's the sound of somebody hitting a microphone stand and then putting some reverb on it and playing it in slow motion.